Hello, and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today I am so super excited to release our very first ever Boundless Body Radio premium podcast. This is something that I have been thinking about for a very, very long time, something that I have wanted to create, and have finally sorted everything out to the point that I'm very, very happy with our end product, and I'm ready to start moving forward to release more of these episodes. So I just wanted to kind of clue you in a little bit on what's going on and why we decided to do this. Boundless Body Radio has been absolutely a smash success from what I thought it was going to be. We are now getting 13,000 monthly downloads from all over the world. We've interviewed so many incredible thought leaders and researchers all around the world on their respective topics, and it's been such a wonderful journey. The trick now is that we've done so much content on so many different topics, it's getting a little overwhelming for people to know where to jump in and where they can get information on certain topics. Um, You know, if somebody asks us, do you have any content about you know, footwork and and the health of the feet. It's like we've done three or four different episodes focusing just on that. Plus we've covered that topic in other interviews that we've done along the way. And so it gets to be very difficult for us to make recommendations on where people can go to find information about specific topics. I knew that one of my priorities this year was to create some type of premium content, put it behind a paywall, but definitely make sure that it was such a high value that people really got way more than what they paid for in value from these episodes. And so that's where this idea was born to create Boundless Body Radio premium podcast episodes. What I've done is I've gone through all of the episodes that we've done and I've tagged different clips from different people talking about one specific topic. Then I've gone through, cut the, the most relevant parts of those episodes out so that they can be very concise and very right to the point without any, you know, talk about other things, joking around, any banter. We cut all of that out and we go right to the very best of the best when it comes to one particular topic. And so this is what we have ended up creating is these very long and comprehensive episodes that really deep dive into one particular topic. We are going to start today with the topic of protein, which I think is very important. And I really wanted to make that our very first one. And we are just going to continue to pump these out and put them on our brand new Patreon page. So what we're asking you to do is to consider Consider this a freebie. We're going to put this out on Balanced Body Radio, obviously, for free for anybody to listen to. So check it out and see if you like it. And if there's more of these that you would like, we really would ask that you subscribe to us on Patreon and pay a very small monthly fee to continue to get these episodes delivered to you so you get the very best and most concise content on every particular topic that we cover. So the next ones that we make will be all about the macronutrients, fat, and carbohydrates. We'll make some about sun exposure and movement and meditation and fasting and all of these wonderful lifestyle practices that we cover on this show. And so those will continue to get pushed out. We are also going to be releasing all of the episodes that we have in storage that we have already recorded, but have not yet released publicly on Boundless Body Radio. So those will be two of the benefits. Then we're going to definitely continue to add more of those benefits to Patreon. So consider checking that out. But for today, enjoy this free episode of the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. Hello, hello, and welcome to this episode of the Boundless Body Radio Premium Podcast. I'm Casey Ruff, and I will be taking you through our content today, which we are going to focus our very first episode on, which is protein. 
protein is such an important macronutrient, one of the main three groups of food of things that we can eat. And we wanted to start with some exclusive content. So this is not something that we have released on Boundless Body Radio. We interviewed Michelle Hearn, who is a registered dietitian, and she is also the author of the book, The Dietitian's Dilemma, which is fantastic. I highly recommend it. We interviewed her on episode 70, but again, this is premium content, exclusive content that didn't appear on that episode. We are going to learn directly from Michelle what protein is and why it's so important. Yeah. So, you know, when I think of protein, the first thing that always comes to my mind is um, it's from the Greek word proteus, which means of first importance. So, you know, out of all the macronutrients, you know, protein is by far one of the most important, you know, when it comes to, we have three different macronutrients, right? We have carbohydrates, protein, and fat. We have essential amino acids, protein, meaning you will die without these. You have to get these from your diet. We have essential fatty acids. So there is fat that you actually have to get from your diet as well. Um, there's no essential carby acid. <laughs> we could talk about that on another time. But protein is incredibly important, right? So protein is basically, you know, broken down into amino acids and they have many different functions in your body. You know, most people associate like, oh, protein, it's for muscle strength. And while, you know, it certainly does... Um, it is important in muscle synthesis, right? You need it to build and maintain muscle. But what protein also does is it's very uh, impactful when it comes to hormone function. You know, it has so many different things in your body. It's important for your cells to meet, communicate. It's important. Um, oh man, <laughs> I just lost my train of thought. But it has a lot of different function. You know, your skin, your nails, your hair. Um, yeah, protein is absolutely essential. And we also know that protein has uh, roles in your brain function. Amino acids, um, you know, the different amino acids can actually impact how your brain works or doesn't work. So when I think of protein too, I don't just think of, um, you know, a lot of people used to say like, oh, it doesn't matter where you get your protein from. Like you can get it from uh, beans or you can get it from steak. And we know now that that is just not true. You know, one of the experts on protein and uh, protein synthesis is Dr. Gabriel Lyon you know, and she worked in geriatric care for many years. And I believe she, she probably still does. And what she saw and what I also witnessed in the hospital setting is a lot of our elderly population. And when I say elderly, I'm not even talking like 90, hundred, I'm talking like 50, 60, you know, I'm almost 40. We even saw it in people as young as their thirties wow. are having muscle wasting. We have a population who's overly fat and under muscled. And muscle is such an incredibly important thing to have as you, uh, especially as you age, even for just the simple task of being able to do activities of daily life. You know, can you lift your groceries? Can you um, pick up your dog? Can you empty the dishwasher? Can you shower? Like all these things that if you're a healthy person, you may take for granted um, are very important to, to have muscle. Yeah. No, that's so critical. I had to laugh to myself because in the very beginning, like you're, you're talking for five seconds and I'm already learning something new about protein that I didn't <laughs> know. Like, this is how we know we find our people. Michelle Hurd is just so amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Educating us right from the get go. I absolutely love that. You brought up um, protein sources, which I think is a really important thing to kind of talk about. I learned from uh, the great plant-based uh, con by Jane Buxton that yes, you can kind of do all these like crazy mental gymnastics to get 
to, to combine different plant foods to then get to a certain amino acid profile to give you a complete protein. But that means you're eating several cups of lentils and mixing that with several cups of spinach. You're also getting tons of carbohydrate and anti-nutrients and all these things that come with it. And it's like, you can maybe kind of sort of combine all these plant foods to get the protein you need, but it's going to be very difficult and you're going to get a lot of other crap that you maybe don't want with that. So tell us a little about protein sources and the difference between animal-based and plant-based protein. Yeah. You know, I was recently at the ketogenic conference in Austin, Texas, and one of my favorites, um, you know, back to Dr. Lyon was talking, she had a graph that showed this very well, you know, talking about if you want your, if you want muscle protein synthesis to happen, if you want to make sure your muscles are recovering, maintaining, building, you have to get enough leucine. Leucine is an incredibly important amino acid. And she was showing like, can you do this with plants? Yes. Like you said, you can. But are you, are you going to eat 12 cups of quinoa every day? Are you going to eat 40 potatoes? Are you going to eat, like you said, this much beans, um, you know, spinach, tofu. And when you eat those things, like, let's say you did, okay. You know, you would be consuming a very high amount of calories, you know, three, 4,000 calories just to get that uh, amount of protein. And so if you're not exercising, I don't know, six hours a day, which we know statistically most Americans get um, zero minutes of exercise, then that's a big problem. Also, anytime you're eating a lot of plant products, you know, we know that things like uh, seeds, grains are very high in phytic acid. Phytic acid is very similar to fiber, and then it binds to calcium and iron. So, you know... Uh, iron deficiency is the number one mineral deficiency worldwide. You know, it's estimated actually that 50% of our children uh, under the age of five are deficient in iron. And it's like, well, what are they eating? Are they eating, you know, animal products, liver and beef? No, they're eating lots of these rices and seeds and peanut butters and toasts and things. So the amount of, uh, you know, beef or even like whey protein isolate, you know, I'm certainly always an advocate for real food first. But the amount of calories that you would need, it's, it's, it's astronomical. You know, it's like you could get three to 400 calories of beef or you had to get like, you know, 2000 calories of potatoes. And obviously, like you said, that would come with so many, um, you know, hormonal impacts on your blood glucose and insulin and potentially cortisol. So people, when people say like, oh yeah, you can get it from plants. The truth is you really can't. Most human beings are not going to do that, um, are not going to be eating that much plants. And if you do, you're going to suffer a lot of other negative health consequences. So, uh, yeah, you know, when it comes to what type of protein can my body actually use? You know, I always say every species has a species specific diet. I have a dog and I have a tortoise. They are both fed very differently. My tortoise eats kale and romaine and grass. My dog eats liver and salmon and (laughs) things that carnivores eat. And when you don't feed uh, your species, species specific diet, they can get very sick. You know, humans evolved eating, you know, animal protein, meat and fat. And did we eat, you know, roots and tubers and things like, absolutely. When those were available or there was like a famine or whatever, absolutely. We know throughout history, um, especially if you live closer to the equator, you probably had more access to vegetation, but it was always animal products were always prioritized just because they were so dense in nutrition. And like something like a steak, people are like, oh, protein. It's not just protein. I mean, this would be my main point is it is what is in that that is going to positively impact my body, that is going to fuel my body. It's the 
B vitamins, it's the carnitine, it's the um, taurines, all the different, even the cofactors, you know, that are in this product that when I eat it, my body uses it. It works perfectly and synergistically to not only build muscle, but to ensure that I'm a healthy functioning human. When we eat, you know, things like, you know, these fake burgers and tofu and soy, our, it, our bodies are not really meant to utilize and digest those things, you know? And that's why a lot of people will have gastric distress and problems. I mean, we know the vegans and vegetarians, this is not debatable. Um, this is just statistically have higher risk of stress fractures, have lower um, yeah, EPA, DHA, and often are deficient in protein. So yeah, when <laughs> animal protein, you know, just simply said your body can use and absorb it. If your body can't use and absorb it, it doesn't matter how much nutrition is in something. That's right. That's right. And that's why those nutritional labels can be so deceiving. You think you're eating that can of spinach and it says you've got so much protein on the back, you're going to turn into Popeye and that just doesn't work because you're <laughs> right, it's not just what you consume. It's what you absorb and take into the body. Exactly. And that's, that's a very simple way of putting it. Like it does not matter. You know, I always use the example of like, if I wrote you a check, like, Hey, Casey, here's a check for a thousand dollars. And you're like, awesome. And you're going to cash it. And they're like, Oh, she only has $17 in her bank account. You'd be like, Oh, that sucks. It doesn't matter how much I write the check for it matters. Can you access the funds? Just like it doesn't matter if spinach has, I don't know, two or three grams of protein in it. If your body cannot actually access and use it, it is effectively useless to you. And if you are eating a lot of quinoa, eating a lot of soy, thinking, man, I'm getting all this protein, your body can't use it. And it comes with a lot of those anti-nutrients. It comes with a lot of that fiber and those phytic acid and things like that. So <laughs> you're actually doing yourself a huge disservice if you're prioritizing plant protein versus animal protein. Yeah, that's such a great point. I love that analogy as well. We really appreciated that exclusive content from Michelle Hearn, who is a registered dietitian, like we said. Um, and we're going to be coming back to her at the end. She's going to give us a little bit of insight before we close the show, which is great. We are now going to go over to Dr. Ted Naiman, who has written extensively about protein, especially in his book, The PE Diet, which is a fantastic way to understand how protein is different than the energy sources that we get in our diet. We couldn't think of a better way to get this thing started by asking him about protein. So we're going to go back to an, the original episode we did with him which is episode 45. I highly recommend that you go back and listen to that episode in its entirety. You can also follow that up with episode 281 that we did with him as well. But we are going to tune in and listen to his explanation of protein and how it fits with some of the other macronutrients. Let's talk about the concept behind your book because I think it's so, it's, it's so well done and well said and it makes it really easy to understand. It makes it easy for other people to understand. So let's talk about that concept, the PE concept. Got it. Okay. Well, thank you very much. And so basically what I did is I zoomed way, 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 way out to look at what the heck eating even actually is, right? So humans are animals and animals are only alive because they constantly ingest other living organisms. So we just eat other living things for or energy and protein and minerals and all the stuff that we need to build our bodies. But what's really at the base of all food for all animals is plants. So plants create all food for all animals. They create food for themselves. They're what we call autotrophs. So plants make all their own food. They make all the food for animals. And they're specifically doing two things. They are collecting solar energy and converting it into chemical energy 
just in the form of high energy carbon, carbon and carbon hydrogen bonds and carbohydrates and fats. So carbs and fats are just three elements, carbon, hydrogen and oxygen chained together with these high energy bonds. And then humans store these carbs and fats and break apart these bonds in our mitochondria. And that's how we get every single bit of energy to power every single thing we do to be alive. So we've got dietary energy, which is just solar energy stored as carbs and fats in these bonds between carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen. And then we have a very specifically separate thing that plants do, and that is sucking up minerals out of soil and uh, primarily nitrogen to make protein. Protein is different from non-protein energy. Protein has nitrogen in it and other minerals or other uh, a dozen or so minerals that are essential to life and plants provide all of this by sucking it up out of the soil. So you can kind of look at all of your food and divide it into two categories. There's protein and minerals, which come from soil and is predominantly nitrogen. And then there's uh, non-protein energy, which is all just carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen chained together as carbs and fats. And so by zooming way out and looking at your diet in terms of protein versus energy, you can already sort of see how there's a little bit of a divide there. <clears throat> and then what ends up happening is that over the past, you know, 10,000 years since we invented agriculture, humans have just figured out how to provide more and more energy in our diet, right? It was when we were hunter gatherers, it was pretty easy to get protein. You went out and just killed an animal and ate the whole thing and you got a bunch of protein. But this animal might have already been starving for energy itself and you're starving for energy and you're trying to add more energy to your diet any way you can. And so we invented agriculture as a way of increasing the energy in our diet. We figured out, hey, if we grow all these starchy carb crops, you know, all of your grains, we have this ready supply of carbohydrate energy that we can dump into our diet. Or if we, um, if we protect animals and keep them in a safe place their whole lives and feed them really well, they get fatter and fatter. We can add energy to our diet in the form of animal fat, right? So we've, you know, we domesticated animals, made them fatter, uh, invented dairy and consuming milk. We um, grew all these grain crops. We just figured out how to add more and more energy to the human food supply. And then with the industrial revolution, we figured out, oh, hey, you can just suck all the carbs right out of something and just have a giant pile of sugar or flour. It's just 100% pure dietary energy, non-protein energy, right? You can also just suck all the oil out of plant foods like industrial seed oils or just suck all the fat out of an animal, you know, with like bacon and lard and uh, heavy cream. And we figured out, you know, we can refine these carbs, refine these fats, dump them in the human food supply. They got cheaper and cheaper and more and more ubiquitous and an infinite shelf life. And what you end up with is humans went from about 33% protein, 33% uh, of calories from protein when we were hunter-gatherers down to about 12.5% of our calories are protein now in the standard American diet. And all of these refined carbs and fats got dumped into the human food supply and created our global epidemics of diabetes 
and metabolic syndrome. And they do this specifically two ways. Number one, all of these refined carbs and refined fats dilute out protein and minerals in the food supply. So you literally have to eat more calories just to get enough protein and minerals to not be hungry. So the satiety per calorie is way, way lower now. The other thing that happens is high energy density carbs and fats together is something you don't really ever find in nature. And it massively drives overeating in omnivore mammals because it's so rewarding on a brain level. You get such a dopamine spike from pizza and donuts and candy bars and anything that's high energy density carbs and fats together. So basically, refined carbs, refined fats, it's all pure non-dietary energy, non-protein um, energy, sorry, and it got dumped in the food supply, and now everybody has to overeat calories to not be hungry, and satiety per calorie is really low. And so the whole point of this PE diet is to zoom way out and look at your diet from this protein versus non-protein energy standpoint, and then try to target the protein side a little harder so you get higher satiety per calorie and you automatically eat less. It turns out that there's this protein leverage phenomenon where the higher the protein percentage, the food that uh, most uh, mammals eat, the less they're going to naturally eat. You just automatically eat less when the protein percent is higher because you have higher satiety per calorie. And so that's that's kind of the big picture, right? It's like zoom way out, think about what eating even is, divide it into protein versus non-protein energy, realize that uh, all of our problems come from dumping in all these refined carbs and refined fats and just pure energies into the food supply, and then go out of your way to try to kind of reverse that trend, if you know what I mean. Mm. So is this maybe the reason why I crack open a bag of potato chips and never on my fourth bite have I said like, whew, that's, that was great. That was great. I'm stuffed. I can go go do anything. now. I've got great energy. I'm totally full and satiated. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, exactly. It's like, okay, you know, your, your 10 ounce bag of potato chips, um, it weighs almost nothing. And it's just basically dehydrated um, carbs, refined carb, refined fat. Uh, you eat that thing, it's 1600 calories and you're hungry in like three hours. You, you might even be a little bit hungrier than before you even had the potato chips um, versus you'd have to eat, you know, 20 eggs to get the same number of calories, wow. you know, and, and, you know, if you eat 20 eggs, you're not hungry probably for the rest of your life. Like you're <laughs> literally never going to be hungry. You might not even physically be able to do it. Yeah, and that's kind of how this works. It's like, satiety per calorie is everything and the hard boiled egg has this crazy high satiety per calorie and your potato chips uh have horrifically low satiety per calorie in fact it's one uh because it's uh you really improve satiety per calorie with protein, fiber, and water. And since potato chips have no protein, no fiber, and no water, and they're dehydrated, um, it's actually the number one food most associated with human obesity is the potato chip. And the reason is because it's totally devoid of protein, fiber, and water, all the things that would improve satiety per calorie. So these dehydrated carbs and fats together are the absolute worst for fat gain. Absolutely. You made me think of the scene from Cool Hand Luke. Remember that? No man can eat 50 eggs and he tries to eat 50 <laughs> eggs in an hour and just barely gets the last one down. <laughs> Great yeah. movie. I got to watch that tonight. Um, when I was back at the gym, we would sit down with people and kind of explain nutrition. And we had a little handout that I would use that I found to be really helpful. 
And it was basically all the different components of a meal that you could mix together to have a healthy meal and thus a healthy diet. And so this would be basically all the macronutrients. And there were four different categories. Um, There was protein, there was fruits and vegetables, there was carbohydrates that said like starchy carbohydrates, and then there was fat and it said healthy fat. So what we would do is tell people like if you put all these things together and do this like 80% of the time, probably you're going to be pretty healthy and happy. If you want specific results, now you can make some adjustments, pull some levers, change some of these things to get specific results. You know, if you want to lose weight, maybe you could do this. If you want to gain muscle, maybe you could do this. And, And you could change those things and manipulate them to get a desired outcome. And it was really helpful to explain what things do, but also what things maybe don't do. Because I see people expecting something, but they're they're eating something that could never give them the effect that they want. And this paper would start out with protein. So I'd love to just kind of talk about protein. Why is protein important? It's it's the biggest, most important thing in your book. You mentioned the satiety. You mentioned what we use protein for. But what what sources of protein are your favorite? Why Why do we need them in the diet? Gotcha. Okay. Well, protein, first of all, protein is the, the thing that you have the biggest need for every day in terms of a macronutrient. So most of us have enough energy calories in our body to live for a couple months without eating any energy at all. But protein, you have this very real turnover daily. And if you're not eating protein, you're going to break down your lean mass, which you really, really, really don't want to do. So protein is your biggest need on a daily basis. It's also the most satiating macronutrient by a very wide margin. So if you're going to eat anything, make it protein. You have to eat protein. And and you can literally just scale up protein percentage and make pretty much any omnivore mammal uh, thinner and thinner and thinner. If you get protein to 50% of calories, you're just going to get uh, in an animal model, you're going to get an animal whose phenotype has the very highest lean mass and the very lowest fat mass. And the exact same thing happens to bodybuilders. You know, most of your elite bodybuilders are, are, you know, getting their protein percent of calories up to 40 probably 50%, maybe even temporarily slightly higher than that. And you just automatically get uh, the highest lean mass at the lowest fat mass. So this protein and protein percentage is probably the biggest deal of all, in my opinion. And it seems to be the biggest lever you can pull when it comes to improving body composition. Because what everybody really, really wants, whether they know it or not, in terms of body composition, is the highest lean mass they can achieve at the lowest fat mass. And that is accomplished by increasing the protein percentage of your calories, quite honestly. It's just as simple as that. Um, Everything else really fades into the background. So protein is definitely primary and the higher the percentage, the better your body composition outcomes are going to be within reason. You cannot eat 100% um, protein, but it's definitely on a sort of a scale. You know what I mean? It's kind of on a spectrum Um, in terms of my favorite proteins. Well, you know, we know from uh, protein digestibility uh, studies that animal protein is superior to plant protein. It's more complete. Uh, You can really talk to any vegan bodybuilder who's using plant protein supplements, and they'll tell you that you have to eat more plant protein to get the same anabolism that you would from animal protein. So, you know, like egg and dairy proteins have very, very high... um, digestibility and availability scores 
and a plant protein, you might literally have to eat 1.5x as much grams of a plant protein to equal the aminos and animal protein. So it's just, it is definitely inferior. You can accomplish this with plant protein. You just have to eat even more of it. And it's even more difficult because the protein percentage of plant foods is inherently lower to start with. Um, the, and the reason this happens is, is bioaccumulation, right? So like grass is growing and it has roots and it can suck some nitrogen out of the soil, but it's very limited by its root system. So it can only get so much nitrogen in its tissues and the nitrogen is going to be fairly low. Now a cow comes along and just walks all over the place and eats like, you know, a hundred thousand blades of grass and it bioaccumulates all this nitrogen and concentrates it. So the amount of nitrogen and protein and minerals in the cow is going to be much, much higher than the grass just to uh, due to bioaccumulation and biomagnification, kind of the way you get more mercury in bigger predatory ocean fish as you go up the food chain. Great you know point. what I mean? You bioaccumulate mercury just like you would something that you actually wanted like nitrogen. So yeah, my favorite proteins, honestly, are animal and there's some, uh, there are animals that were eating what they were supposed to be eating. So like grass fed uh, ruminants are awesome. Uh, pasture eggs are awesome. Wild caught seafood is awesome. Uh, dairy, that's uh, where the proteins magnified by either being low carb, low fat, fermented or all the above is really awesome as well. So my favorite proteins are basically grass-fed ruminants, wild-caught seafood, pastured eggs, and um, some sort of fermented low-carb and low-fat dairy. That's awesome. Very well explained. You Well, we're talking about protein first, but you recommend literally eating protein first. Is that correct? That, that is absolutely correct. Right, right, right. So if you're hungry right now, you don't really know exactly what you're hungry for. Now, humans have an appetite for, you know, basically four specific things, protein, carbohydrate, fat, and then minerals, uh, most notably sodium and calcium. So if you're hungry right now, you don't really know what you're hungry for. You know, hunger is a very nonspecific signal. It's like, okay, you need to ingest more of something for some reason. You don't know what, you don't know why, you're just hungry, right? So if you go way out of your way to target the hell out of protein and minerals and you eat something first that's tons of protein and tons of minerals and you eat all of this and you hit your nutrient target for these protein minerals, uh, then what you're left with, any hunger you're left with, you know, is more of an energy hunger and you might want to eat some additional carbohydrate, fat, or ideally a little bit of both, but you're in a much better place to know how much non-protein energy to eat. So I literally recommend eating protein first. That's exactly what we're recommending in the PE diet is you target this protein first you front load all of this protein and then you're in a much better place to know if you even really need to eat any energy. If you're really over fat, you might not need to eat a lot of energy. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good point. So protein is super important. It's essential to the diet. It helps us with our lean mass. I'm glad you said lean mass and not just muscle mass because that's what everybody thinks of. But there's a lot more to lean mass than just muscle. Um Focus on animal proteins. The higher quality, the better. That's all really good. We're on board. What is your recommendation for amount? 
So for, for, for me, bare minimum protein goal for everybody is a gram per pound of ideal body weight. So not, not what you weigh, not what your lean mass is, not any sort of complicated formulas or anything. It's just like, what is the reference weight for your height and gender? Like what should you weigh? And then I would eat a gram per pound. So like I'm five foot 10 and reference ideal body weight for a five foot 10 male is 160 pounds. So like for me, a bare minimum would be 160 grams of protein a, per day. Even if I'm, if I'm underweight and I only weigh 130, I would still have 160 as a target. Even if I'm hugely overweight and I'm 400 pounds, I would still have this 160 as a baseline target for everyone. That's what I'm recommending in the book, a gram per pound of ideal body weight. Perfect. That's exactly the same recommendation that I use for my people. That's, that's perfect. And, and you kind of have to clarify for some people, like it's just really to say, like, if you're 400 pounds, no, you don't necessarily need to eat 400 grams of protein, but you should be somewhere in that ballpark of, of one gram a pound of protein per ideal body weight. So perfect. I love that. So as we continue with this interview, I just wanted to point out at this point of the interview, I do ask Dr. Ted Naiman if he has any specific recommendations for how much protein somebody should be consuming in a single day. And I just think this is hilarious. It didn't occur to me at the time, but when you hear me agree with him and say like, wow, no, that's exactly what I do and how I recommend protein intake for my people. I did not realize at the time of this interview that I had already stolen this advice from Dr. Ted Naiman a long, long time ago. So I just think it's kind of funny to point out you can see how like wow like I'm, I'm really like sure of myself here it's pretty funny so for for me bare minimum protein goal for everybody is a gram per pound of ideal body weight so not not what you weigh not what your lean mass is not any sort of complicated formulas or anything it's just like what is the reference weight for your height and gender like what should you weigh and then I would eat a gram per pound. So like I'm five foot 10 and reference ideal body weight for a five foot 10 male is 160 pounds. So like for me, a bare minimum would be 160 grams of protein a, per day. Even if I'm, if I'm underweight and I only weigh 130, I would still have 160 as a target. Even if I'm hugely overweight and I'm 400 pounds, I would still have this 160 as a baseline target for everyone. That's what I'm recommending in the book, a gram per pound of ideal body weight. Perfect. That's exactly the same recommendation that I use for my people. That's, that's perfect. And, and you kind of have to clarify for some people, like, it's just really to say, like, if you're 400 pounds, no, you don't necessarily need to eat 400 grams of protein, but you should be somewhere in that ballpark of, of one gram a pound of protein per ideal body weight. So perfect. I love that. Next, we are going to be learning from Professor Stu Phillips, who is a world-renowned protein researcher. He is an absolute expert in muscle turnover. We have been honored to host him two times on our show as well, back in episode 71, and also more recently in episode 282. And that's where we're going to go for this clip. The clip is about 20 minutes long, and we are going to be discussing a little bit about the things that he has learned about animal versus plant proteins over the years. We're also going to talk about longevity and the appropriate amount of protein that people should be eating. Where are you at currently with thinking about the importance of intaking protein? 
Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I think it's, it's definitely still above the recommended dietary allowance. And I, I've often said to people that I would actually be happy if we just change the, the name of the recommended dietary allowance to the minimum dietary intake. In other words, it's, it's not what's recommended and it's, you know, you're allowed to eat more. And so if you just say that's the minimum dietary intake, I think at least twice that much. And so you go from 0.8 grams of protein per kilo up to 1.6. So it's a, probably about 0.6 to 0.7 grams of protein per pound of body weight, unless you're, you're fairly overweight. And uh, I heard a brilliant algorithm from a, a guy named Eric Helms the other day that says, if you took your height in, in centimeters, which is another one, okay, we got to do the conversion, but let's say uh, it's that number of grams if somebody's overweight. And it turns out to be a ridiculously good predictor of probably where they should aim. But let's just say it's more than is recommended. It's not as high as some people would recommend. You know, it's definitely, it's close to the one gram per pound, which is the bodybuilding sort of uh, axiom. But um, I don't think that most people are training hard enough uh, to really put themselves into that sort of spot. I do agree that if you sort of quote unquote overeat anything, overeating protein is, it is, there's less of a downside than there is for carbohydrates and fats. You know, you flip that all over and you've got people, you know, protein causes kidney disease. And that's definitely not true. It's off the table. It's an old hypothesis. It just needs to die. Uh, protein causes your bones to be soft. And that's also untrue, uh, particularly if you're getting adequate amounts of vitamin D and calcium. And the latest one is uh, protein drives cancer. Um, and that's a tougher one to sort of push back against. But again, uh, when you look at the uh, observational data from humans, so associations between protein intake and, and cancer, uh, it's decidedly mixed. So there's some no effect there's others, low protein is actually a bad thing and people die earlier. So, you know, when you have sort of things that go either side of the equation, you have to ask yourself whether it's a true, what we call, you know, a true signal. Um, so I'm, I'm going to stick uh, until proven otherwise to the twice as much as uh, people are telling you you need uh, and debunk the idea that everybody's getting enough, particularly as people get older. Yeah. Um, because that, that group, when you're beginning now to lose muscle mass, I think is a group that could definitely stand to eat, uh, more protein. Interesting. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I'm probably stealing this from the same podcast episode I was just mentioning with Peter T and, uh, Lane Norton, but I want to say like, if, if, if it were true that, you know, a, a very high protein intake would cause cancer, wouldn't we like kind of sort of see a lot of people who are active and in the gym who are actively working to gain muscle, wouldn't there be an explosion of cancer at some point with them that we may not say this is causative, but like there's some correlation. Yeah. here. Yeah. 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 To your point. I mean, I think, you know, cancer is a, it's a tough one, right? Everybody says cancer and, and, and they put the umbrella over the top of it as if it's one disease. Um, whereas, you know, uncontrolled cell growth is definitely common to all of the types of cancer, but it's very different in one tissue versus the other. So I don't see a, an over proliferation of certain types of cancers in, uh, people who are in the gym. So maybe, Again, borrowing uh, a, a line from a good friend of mine, Mike Joyner, uh, that I really enjoy, which is that exercise is the forgiver of many sins, is that that is what is allowing you to uh, do something and the protein is actually supportive 
as opposed to being a negative or down regulation or an up regulation, whatever it is in, in people who are not physically active. So I think, you know, again, it comes back. Um, a lot of the reasons I eat is because I, I enjoy having a beer every now and again and a glass of wine and I, and I like cake, you know, so people say, <laughs> wow, you're eating that cake. And I'm like, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I mean, probably another 30 minutes on the, on the bike tomorrow, a big deal. You know? so, um, yeah, not to be too cavalier. I mean, I think the point is, uh, is definitely you, you can, you can probably dodge a lot of, um, poor lifestyle or poorer lifestyle choices uh, as so long as you're physically active. Yeah, gotcha. Um, as far as longevity goes, I I, I want to say this is uh, rodent studies, and maybe this is what you were referring to earlier. When we're talking about longevity and, and restricting protein, that mm. if, if I understand it right, it has been shown to increase longevity, but again, it's only yeah. in rodents. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so the calorie restriction or the energy restriction is the bigger of the two fields. In other words, that's sort of, it's pretty conclusive that if you, you do that and, and everything up to primates, we've got two actually studies that conflict a little bit with, um, with a certain species of monkeys. So I'm not sure whether that's convincing, but I mean, you know, being lean and keeping a low body weight is sort of, you know, intrinsically, you know, that's a good thing. And so you look at these primates that are calorically restricted and they look much better than the uh, the primates that are sort of, well, I'll call it ad libitum fed or overfed or whatever you want to say. So, I guess the question is is is, is caloric restriction when something is in a cage and not exposed to the environment, not exposed to pathogens like a you know like a virus, um, you know, are, are are they in better shape? And you can get the same effects when you restrict protein, and it's probably a you know the the, the mechanisms appear to be slightly different, but I'm sure that there's some commonality around not promoting uh, growth of tissues that shouldn't be growing. And that's the cancer story. So, you know, uh, from that perspective, I, I, I hedge my bets a little bit on the protein restriction story, which as you say, is predominantly a rodent story at this point and go then to, we don't have a randomized control trial. So we have to use observational data uh, and say, you know, there's there's observations on both sides showing protein restriction is good or less protein is good. And then, you know, more protein is good. So that's when you sort of go, well, if you once you have evidence on both sides to me, then it's a lot of noise and you can't really find the true signal. And so I I stop short of saying what works for rodents is therefore good for people. Yeah. And, you know. Yeah, that's a really good point. What one of the the places where we seem to get more and more noise, I think, is um the difference between plant protein and animal protein. And yeah. it was yeah. looking so strong for so long, like animals the best, pro, plant protein will not work, cannot work. And now there it seems like there's more research and study coming out that's saying, yeah, there's there's a few caveats, but plant protein can't actually work for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like I'll be honest and you know, put my hand on my heart and say I'd be a crappy scientist if I uh if I ever said that, you know, I'm not changing my mind on that, despite evidence that we've even generated in our lab. And probably we are, we, me, uh, are as guilty as some people uh, as, um, as others of saying that animal protein is superior. We've known that for a long time. The superiority comes from a, a better profile of essential amino acids, a higher digestibility, and maybe the ease of availability, like it was just easy to get your and hit your protein targets with animal protein. Uh, 
10, 15, 20 years ago when I first started at McMaster, I absolutely, I said, yeah, hands down, uh, animal protein, dairy protein in particular, uh, plant-based proteins, uh, you know, you know, because it was pretty much soy. Uh, 20 plus years later, uh, you look around now and there's pea protein, there's rice protein, there's cricket protein, there's, you know, like it's just enormous, the explosion of different sources of protein. And people have done work now where they've, you know, treated proteins, they've sprouted them, they've uh, cooked them, you know, things that we probably did discounted before. They're an important part of the processing before they actually go into your mouth. And when we do the studies and we compare them head to head, I find the differences we thought they used to be, you know, this big. And now we're finding if they're even there, they're, they're, they're pretty much trivial for particularly for active people. So I think the other thing that's changed is, uh, you know, there's a, there's a much greater availability of plant-based products. And uh, so it's easier, if that's the right word, to, to hit those protein targets that we once thought were just not achievable with, uh, you know, v- vegan, uh, but e- maybe even vegetarian diets. But uh, vegan, definitely. I'd be like, ah, oh, you know, you're going to struggle. Um, but now I think the gloves are off. And I think that the the plant-based narrative has uh, something to tell with uh, respect to, you know, pr- preservation and even gaining of muscle. Uh, so I've got to dial back some of what I said before <laughs> and go uh, with that. I was just thinking the two things that keep me humble in life is playing hockey with my buds and they just tear me to shreds every week and then and being in the nutrition world. It's so yeah. incredible how many times yeah. we're just like, I don't know, changing our mind, saying like I, yesterday yeah. it was t- so true. It was this. And now today I'm confused again. It's a constant. Yeah. And, it, and it's frustrating, right? People want science to give answers and they, they, they give the best answer based on the state of knowledge and, and yeah, knowledge grows all the time and uh, everything where we've put plant-based, like pretty high quality plant-based or plant-based blends uh, head to head against animal uh, proteins, particularly milk-based proteins, um, there, there's very little difference. The only area where we still a little bit underinformed is in older folks. And so we need to do some well-controlled studies, uh, in people who, you know, are in need of more protein and whether vegan vegetarian type diets are, are still enough for them. But, uh, you know, hopefully that research will come around soon. Yeah, it's good news for people that choose any different way of eating that they can still get good results, whether they choose what I do yeah. or not. That's totally fine. A ton, tons of different yeah. options. I'm not willing to trade in my steak for crickets at this point, but uh, good to know that that might be an option. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I hear you. I I, uh, I, I like a good steak every now and again, but but I, I and again, I, I have tried cricket protein. I was prepared for the worst, but was actually pleasantly surprised. So nice. uh, if you can get around the fact that it's crickets, it, it you know, there's, and I, I don't, I, I've, eat, I've tried all, a lot of foods, a, a lot of different places in the world. And it's sort of uh, not quite fear factor, but I've, I've said, you know what, these people are eating it. Uh, you know, I should, it's just a perception to overcome it. So uh uh, yeah, so I've been impressed with the, the cricket protein, at least that I've tried for sure. Yeah, interesting. That's great. Um, you did mention amino acids. For somebody that's not familiar mm. with amino acids, can you explain, yeah. you know, what they are and and why you know they're part of protein? Obviously, um, but also there seems to be one in particular that just keeps coming up as like the most important one to talk about. Can you enlighten us about that? Yeah, I mean, amino acids are the building blocks of protein. Um, unlike carbohydrates or fats, which are just fuel for your body, 
uh, amino acids are the backbones of the protein structures that are our skin, our bones, you know, our muscle, definitely, or, but our brains, our heart, our lungs, everything. Um, and the one that, you know, particularly for muscle that keeps turning up and it's again and again. And so this is, you know, a big thing in the sort of plant versus animal protein world is the amino acid leucine. Um, and it's kind of like, you know, once that amino acid arrives, it flick, it turns on the process of muscle protein synthesis or making new muscle protein. And the other, the other amino acids then are just the substrates for, for making new protein. So it's come down to the point now where I think if we can match leucine doses between two different proteins, then actually the rest of the amino acids are, I won't say immaterial, but, uh, they're a little bit less important. So if you can get plant-based or if you can get uh, even a very low quality protein and just you know touch up the leucine content by adding leucine if you want, um, then things tend to go a little bit better for muscle for sure. Gotcha. I'm glad you brought that up. I, it seems like there's different amounts of protein to get to that critical level of leucine. Yeah. And and yeah. correct my work. I'm not sure if I'm right on this, but I, I want to say I was taught that like with whey protein, a shake, you'd be like 27 grams. Most animal protein dosages yeah. would be about 30 to 40 grams. And so I would assume plant protein, you would need, you know, 40, 50, 60 plus. Yeah, yeah, you, you you tend to get up into those types of numbers. The ones that you've uh, sort of given as examples are pretty pretty much spot on. But the difference is now is that there are some plant based proteins, and I know like every I say corn protein, and people goes, "How much protein is in corn?" And I'm like, "Well, not much, but we grow a lot of corn, corn. <laughs> and, and and we don't we don't eat it all. I mean, that's so you know a lot of it gets distilled into ethanol and everything else like that, and some is animal feed and everything else, but we can process corn to isolate what little protein it has. And for, you know, people, I don't know why, but it, it's very high in leucine. So you can blend corn protein with other proteins and get up to that leucine dose at manageable amounts of protein. So, you know, if you had 30 grams versus say 30 grams, I, I think the response would be just about identical. So, um, you know, there are some plant source proteins that are higher in leucine and everybody wants to know why. And I'm like, I have no idea. Like it's, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a botanist. Right. So, um, but that's just the way it's turned out. So the, it's, it's blending some of these proteins, uh, that's particularly important. I mean, I think most sort of people understand beans and rice together are the, that's the vegan, uh, blend that, you know, you go everywhere in the world and they figure that out. So, um, but yeah, some proteins, uh, corn protein, which is, you know, a South American staple in, uh, any type of um, sort of bread that they make, uh, it, it, it's 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 a pretty high quality protein. Eat that with some some beans or uh, you know some meat, and uh, you, you're in good shape. Wow, so interesting. So when we're thinking about you know the meals that we eat or every like event where we're eating something, if if all things were equal as far as the protein amount intake in a day, but somebody was eating a smaller amount more frequently mm. versus somebody yeah. that was having a bigger bolus less frequently, would we yeah. would it be fair to say that the person getting the bigger bolus is less frequently? would be triggering um, muscle protein synthesis through taking enough leucine. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, I think again, this is another one where I've got to rewind a little bit. Some of the stuff I said earlier in my, my career and say that variable of like, you know, small meals versus larger meals or whatever. I do think there is a sort of an optimal dose and it's probably, you know, in that 20 to sort of 30 gram range. But, um, 
for most people, you know, that's a, that's a small variable compared to just getting the adequate amount of protein that you need within a given day. So let's say that, you know, if it's four meals versus two or some intermittent fasters, it's, it's just one. Um, and I, you know, I would always say, oh, that's not a very good way to do things. But then I see some people intermittent fasting and they're lifting at the same time. And they have some pretty impressive physiques, not to the extent maybe that they couldn't have them a little bit better with more protein, but it doesn't appear to be limiting any sort of gain in muscle that they make. So, you know, from a purely sort of observational standpoint, I think that it matters more to hit your daily protein intake than it does, you know, dividing it up over more meals. But, you know, the stand pad is to say four eating occasions per day, try and distribute your protein evenly. But um, the evidence on that is thinner uh, than it once was. Let's just say that. Yeah, so interesting. So again, when we're talking about things like exercise, we're saying, generally speaking, you should exercise. You should lift some weights. Don't worry so much about all of these other variables. Almost sounds like the same thing in protein intake. Like we can maybe talk about how we're going to parse out all these meals and how much protein you're going to intake. But like, you know, for, for somebody who's 80 years old and they're eating 50 grams of protein a day, just get more, start with that. Just get way more than you're getting however you get it. Exactly. Yeah, I know. It's, it's, it's somewhat discouraging. And yet I enjoyed it at the same time to say that some of the prescriptions that we cared about a lot, um, I think, you know, once you get into this sort of, uh, what do I need to live better, live longer, live well, um, it's do something and, you know, a lot more than, than nothing and more of something is probably, but the big change comes in the initial. So if you can go from 50 you know, to 60 grams of protein, that's probably going to help. If you can go from 60 to 70, then, you know, all of those things, and it's sort of small changes that begin to make bigger differences. So yeah, absolutely. Try and hit that daily protein intake, be physically active, keep a high VO2 max and, and try and stay strong. And, uh, you know, that's, that's not a bad message, right? You like to keep things simple. So the content around plant versus animal protein was something that was very surprising to me. It was very interesting to hear that we can, you know, in certain circumstances, create proteins that can be helpful for people if they want to remain on a plant-based diet. I will still argue strongly that animal-based protein is far superior because it's more complete and has less of the anti-plant nutrients. Um, But just to give that idea a little bit more space, we wanted to go back to an interview that we did with Dr. Hamilton Rochelle, who specifically did a study on vegan bodybuilders using plant-based and vegan proteins, which I thought was very interesting. And again, as, as long as it gives us a different perspective, I think it's valid to include here. You're vegan. You're all you get is uh, plant-based protein. So you're you're not gonna gain muscle. You're not gonna uh, bulk up and get uh, muscle strength and muscle mass and all that. And again, there's plausibility to 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 this argument, but they're based on acute studies more. Uh, aimed to, to investigate the physiological aspect of nutrition. And it's not really a clinical trial where you assessing a clinical parameter such as uh, muscle mass. You're assessing like biomolecular pathways and different molecular and physiological responses. Mm. And it all uh, uh, pointed towards uh, uh, a better response uh, when you eat 
animal protein when you compared to to the same amount of plant protein but uh what we wanted to do is that uh, the literature on this uh, this topic was actually more uh, um it was scarce in a way that it didn't really investigate it uh, um, those eating exclusively plant-based proteins uh, diets they're more like let's get a bunch of omnivores and we supplement them with their, either with uh, plant protein or animal protein and look at uh, um, these acute responses and see what happened. And again, uh, it seems from these early studies that the animal protein was always uh, eliciting a greater anabolic response than the, than the plant protein. But uh, uh, our study was focused on the long-term response. So what we did is that we got a, a group of vegans. Uh, we wanted to, to study uh, individuals that would consume uh, uh, exclusively plant-based diet. So you used vegan as a model for that. And we got a, a, a matched omnivore individuals, all healthy young individuals in this, in this study. They were similarly active. They were physically active individuals. They were about the same age, same height, same muscle mass, same muscle strength at baseline. And we did this very thorough assessment of their eating habits. So we really understand what their habitual uh, uh, dietary intake was and how it fluctuate over the days because we wanted to do a uh, more fair comparison. What does that mean? It means that we wanted to, to investigate uh, if vegans and omnivores, both under adequate protein intakes, would differ in their ability to respond to a, to a strength training program. So by understanding what they ate regularly, we could uh, design uh, or individually tailor uh, supplements to 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 elevate their protein intake, their daily protein intake. And what we wanted to do is is have people eating 1.6 grams per kg body mass, which seems to be the breaking point to each protein. Doesn't matter. More protein won't make you gain more muscle mass. So that would be the adequate amount of protein, uh, uh, generic value. Uh, so everyone would, would have to, to, to take uh, 1.6 grams of protein a day. So to the vegans, we offered uh, soy protein isolate. So uh, um, they still under a 100% plant-based diet. And to the omnivores, we offered whey protein. And they add up to 80% of their protein coming from animal sources. So we're comparing two very different groups in respect of their protein source. Mm. Um, all, all, all else was pretty much equal. No difference in energy intake. They're training the same. They're training with us. Uh, uh, so it's a supervised training program. We uh, um, individually supervised every training session. We did a whole bunch of assessments of these guys at a baseline and after three months of intervention. And we wanted to assess uh, muscle gains in different levels. So we assessed them with DEXA scans. And DEXA, uh, they really don't, don't look at muscle mass. They look at lean mass. And lean mass is not all muscle. There's muscle, there's water, there's connective tissue. 
uh, everything that's not bone or fat is called lean mass in that sense. Mm. So uh, we're looking at more uh, macro uh, uh, um, parameter, so lean mass. Then we went on to look at uh, uh, muscle cross-sectional area by ultrasound imaging. So we have a technique where we, we can capture a, a cross-sectional image of your thigh muscle by ultrasound technique. And we can calculate what the cross-sectional area of that muscle is. So if you do that assessment uh, pre and post intervention, you know how much you add up in uh, in that cross-sectional area. And that accounts for muscle hypertrophy. But we wanted to look at muscle uh, in a more deeper level as well. So we took muscle biopsies of these individuals, both pre and post intervention. And we looked at the, the muscle fiber cross-sectional area too. So we have three different levels of assessment to make sure that we, we capture uh, any possible differences in their ability to respond to training. And we, of course, we did some functional assessments as well. So we look at uh, muscle strength gains. And to our uh, um, surprise, and when, I wouldn't say surprise, but to some people's surprise, what we found is that the vegans and omnivores, they gain exactly the same amount of muscle, no matter what the technique that we used to assess it was. Wow. Uh, they, so they gained the same lean mass, they gained the same muscle cross-sectional area, they gained the same fiber cross-sectional area and they gained the same uh, uh, muscle strength as well. So our conclusion to this study was that given the, the protein in, intake is adequate, there shouldn't be any differences in your ability to gain muscle while being vegan. But uh, of course, we have to restrict this to, to healthy young individuals and they may not play it out exactly the same when we talk about uh, some specific population, let's say elderly or those with some chronic conditions that might hamper or might compromise the, the muscle response. Uh, I'm not saying that it's going to be different, but we didn't test for that. So we mm. cannot ex extrapolate our findings because we know that elderly, they have a lesser anabolic response to to either nutrition or uh, exercise or the combination of both to, to be to be fair. So uh, elderly uh, has what we call the anabolic resistant uh, uh, response, which basically is to the same anabolic stimuli. Uh, the response of an elderly person is usually less of that seen in a healthy young counterpart. So, uh, um, we don't know how protein source might affect this. Mm. Even though we, we're giving enough protein to our elderly individual, that still might be a point of difference. We don't know. So wow. we, we, we like to be conservative and, and confine our results to what we studied, which was healthy young wow. individuals in that particular study. 
So I definitely wanted to include that clip so that it can be really helpful for people who are still trying to follow a plant-based diet and still want to grow muscle. It's just really important to understand the context of that and understand that even so, following a plant-based diet, it's still very important to focus on protein. So I'm going to read the conclusion of the study that Hamilton Rochelle was just talking about. A high-protein, exclusively plant-based diet, which is a plant-based whole foods diet with soy protein isolate supplementation, is not different than a protein-match mixed diet, so that's a mixed whole foods diet with whey protein supplementation in supporting muscle strengths and mass mass accrual suggesting that protein source does not affect resistance training induced adaptations in untrained young men consuming adequate amounts of protein so i just wanted to read that to really emphasize that even if you are trying to follow a plant-based diet you need to emphasize protein in the diet and it's also fair to say that these people were supplementing with plant-based supplements, which is taking more of the isolated form of protein. This is not necessarily going out and eating a bunch of soybeans to be able to get that protein. So um, even Dr. Hamilton Rochelle admits later on in the interview that leucine is very, very important and one of the most important amino acids to get. And that can only really be found in good quantities in animal foods, not in plant foods. In fact, the plant foods that are cited for having the most leucine, leucine excuse me, are things like soy, legumes and greens. And those foods are going to be very, very, very high in anti-nutrients. Plants will fight back as we'll learn later on in the episode. We're going to go now to Dr. Ben Bickman, who is a world famous insulin researcher down at BYU. He is the author of Why We Get Sick. And he's going to start out this conversation by talking about insulin, which I think is relevant. We're going to get to the protein and the fat also, but wanted to start out with him talking about insulin, which is really in his wheelhouse. And then we'll slowly transition over to talking about protein. The solution in the case of insulin resistance is turn it down. Turn down the, the volume here. Let Give the body a break. Give the cells a break from the incessant insulin. And all of a sudden, they will become more insulin sensitive. Mm. Are carbohydrates the only thing that increase uh, insulin production? Yes. In, in general, yes. Uh, so if we look across the three macronutrients, carbohydrate, protein, and fat, um, carbohydrates are without a doubt the greatest um, stimulus of insulin. But of course, that, that it encompasses a tremendous range. Uh, and, and, and I would want anyone to know that when I'm speaking about the benefits of a low-carb diet, uh, I am in no way attempting to uh, equalize broccoli with uh, a donut. Uh, so there, there's a, an enormous um, spectrum of what a carbohydrate will do to insulin. In general, grains... And, and sugars, of course, will have a significant effect, and vegetables and certain fruits will have a modest effect. That's the general theme at the risk of, you know, needing to get into more detail. Protein will have a modest effect. When protein is consumed on its own, like pure whey, it can have a less, a, a more than modest effect where it can be pretty um, uh, quite consequential likely. And I think what's relevant there, and, and it, maybe I'll finish this and just say fat has no effect. There are some people who say, well, fat does, and there is a limited evidence to show that. Uh, and, and the evidence, the studies that show that there is a statistical increase in insulin with fat, it's when the person has consumed about five to 600 calories of fat. And then the little insulin curve at about two hours is statistically significant but it's, I would argue it's meaningless where it goes from like five microunits per mil up to eight microunits per mil. And, and so that the, the statistician says, oh, well, that reached a significant level. And I, as a physiologist would say, yeah, but that's not meaningful. 
But nevertheless, I'm going to be bold to say there's essentially no effect to insulin on fat or response to fat. Uh, And then protein, there can be. But if you eat that protein with fat, the insulin effect is significantly um, reduced. Uh, uh, and, And I think that's relevant because in nature, God designed... Uh, and, and indeed, I'm a very religious person, so I am going to be bold to say it that way. But if that offended someone, they would just say nature. Um, but I will, I'm not pagan, so I'm not going to say mother nature. I will say God designed um, proteins to come with fat. And in nature, they do. All of the best proteins, or, or literally every protein, literally every protein comes with fat. And the best proteins for humans are undoubtedly the animal-based proteins. Uh, and I, I do mean that very objectively, quantifiably, animal proteins beat any plant protein um, in in the world. And and that is eggs, meat, and dairy. They are the best protein sources for humans. This has been quantified. There's no, there should be no debate on that. Those all come with fat. And so my sentiment with regards to protein is eat it with fat. It's how it's supposed to be. Protein is not supposed to come alone. When we eat protein with fat, the, the combination of those two allows us to digest the fat, uh, sorry, di- to digest the protein better because of the fat that has been shown. Uh, and protein and fat are more anabolic than protein alone. That was a fascinating study that had uh, people working out and they quantified the degree to which the muscles made new protein, had them, uh, in other words, got bigger um, with muscle protein. Then they had the people eat a load of protein, the best, which was egg white, and the measured protein um, growth, uh, muscle growth. Uh, and then they had them eat egg white with an egg yolk, which is this, what I consider a divine ratio of one to one of protein to fat by mass. And, and, the, and the muscles got bigger still than the protein alone. So as if you have, you know, when I imagine people listening to this and they're so interested in getting enough protein, which I applaud, I think that is good. We should be prioritizing protein. It's one of what I consider to be the pillars of a smart diet but you must get it with fat. Don't artificially get protein alone. So I would even say, don't just scoop out a scoop of whey protein. That's not the way you're supposed to get it. If you are going to get whey protein from a supplement, which I think is fine, get it with fat. In fact, at the risk, I, I, I am a little reluctant in stating this because I wouldn't want someone to think I, I'm anything but a scientist, but, but I am a little more than a scientist. It was my frustration with pure or, or heavily protein, skewed protein shakes as meal replacement shakes that I, in fact, designed my own. And, and I will just say this, anyone who wants to learn more, go to gethealth.com and health is spelled H-L-T-H. And, and basically, this was a meal replacement shake that was built on a pillar of one-to-one protein to fat. And so, you know, the best proteins, egg whites and whey, and that matched with uh, some of the best fats, uh, mostly from fruit fats, just because they're more stable. Um, and that was coconut and olive mm. and a little bit of ghee. Awesome. Nevertheless, that's that little infomercial's done. But <laughs> when people focus on protein and fat, focus on if you want to prioritize protein, do it. That's great. But let the fat come with it the way God intended. Our bodies are, are built to take it that way. Mm, I love that. No, that's great. Um, we will be sure to link that in the show notes. Um, I want to go back to something you said. I am about, I don't know, 30 miles north of you right now um, in, in mm-hmm. the valley to the north, both in Utah, practicing distancing. I look outside and I yeah. don't see many things growing right now. It's really cold. <laughs> I'm kind of bundled up. And I, I look out on the land and I don't see many things 
growing. I don't see fruit. I don't see vegetables. Yeah. I don't see the wonderful tomatoes I had a few months ago. Everything's kind of sleeping. And so I think let's go back 10,000 years and look at this valley and say, where am I going to find my food? And you're right. My only shot at finding food this time of year is going to be hunting animals. And they are going to come with fat and protein, but carbohydrates are going to be exceedingly rare. I I may not Mm -hmm. come across them for many months. Yet in the summertime, I might find a lot of them for a very short period of time. Can you explain how that was beneficial for us as we evolved? Yeah, no, absolutely. In fact, I, I, I like that you're seeing the world that way. I do think there are some perhaps lessons we learn um, or we can we can learn or relearn by by wondering how our ancestors might have lived. Not that we're going to attempt to replicate all that. We, no one would want to. Now, I of course I'm not an anthropologist, so I, I'm not a, a scientist of sort of human history and changes over time. But I, I would say here, certainly in the arid conditions of Utah, but even the same would apply in less arid places like in Texas, where I was down in Houston. That's a lush area but you just don't find plants spontaneously growing edible foods. The vast, vast majority of all plants in the world are completely inedible. In fact, indeed, if we try to eat them, we become sick. And if we persisted in continuing to eat, if we persisted in eating them, we would die. The vast majority of plants are, are not um, consumable for humans or even most animals. And the fact that we have as many plants as we do right now is because we have scientific, we've bred them to be edible. We have, we've bred them to, to, you know, to uh, exaggerate what we want and to and minimize these molecules that we don't want, including molecules that are getting, that people are getting a lot of when they're getting their plant-based proteins that are physically inhibiting their intestines ability to digest the very proteins they're eating. Plants, in a way, I don't mean this to sound dramatic, but they fight back by putting chemicals in them to discourage us from wanting to eat them. So around us, if we were hunter-gatherers, we would most certainly find some success. And, and I believe around here, much of that would be, um, you know, random berries um, and and maybe some some tuberous, uh, you know, roots that we could eat. And, and, and maybe a few more and, and just... The, undoubtedly, the, and I can't speak to them just because I'm not familiar enough with that area of research. So there, we would be able to get some plants, um, and many of them would become ripe towards the end of summer and early fall. And so even in the spring, for example, or even in the middle of the summer, most, although if, if you have your own garden, in fact, I want you tell me, I haven't had a garden since I was a boy. I, nothing is coming ripe in the summer, right? Or maybe towards the end of summer, yeah, that's when you get those great tomatoes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So this would be like July, August. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I haven't gardened in a few years either, but um, my friends have, and I still yeah. get tomatoes every now and again. <laughs> yeah, good. Well, but that's my point, though, is that there, there are, there's a significant time where, well, regardless, even then, even in the summer when things would be full bloom, we I, I, undoubtedly, I, I am just convinced, our ancestors would have still been heavily reliant on animal-based foods. These, these, these sources of carbohydrates, which are, are fine, that's wonderful. I have no problem with them. Um, they would have almost always been a, a bonus. You know, in other words, hey, look, we got some berries. That's awesome. Let's add them to the meat that we're eating or whatever. It's, it's dessert after the meat. But humans, there is, there, it, it, it makes me very curious how people could 
claim that humans are not omnivores. We are, or even more carnivore than we are herbivore. A human cannot, cannot live on plants alone. So Dr. Ben Bickman mentioned that he doesn't consider himself an expert in human anthropology. So we're going to cut away here for a second. Luckily, we have talked to experts in human evolution. And we're going to start with Dr. Mickey Bendor, who is out of Israel. He is a paleoarchaeologist who spends his time studying our human evolution through the Paleolithic era. He really categorizes humans as fat hunters uh, based on his really exciting and interesting research. And then we're also going to hear from Dr. Bill Schindler. He's also an archaeologist, and he is the author of the book Eat Like a human. We have hosted him twice on our show. We've also hosted Mickey twice on our show. They've both been fabulous. Let's cut away to hear from them and their opinion on human evolution. I want to go back to the design of Homo sapien, especially. And some people would argue that we are omnivores and we can eat animals and plants and both, you know, work and are totally fine. I've heard you describe this in the past. Would you agree with that? Are we omnivores? Yes, definitely. Okay. There's no question about it. It's like, uh, no, the only, the only problem with that, uh, uh, using the term omnivore, is uh, that we, at the same time, attach to it wrongly, uh, unlimited flexibility. So this is not the case with omnivores. The omnivores, for instance, there's a paper that took like 139 or seven, if I remember correctly, uh, mammals, again, terrestrial mammals, and checked their diet and found out that 80% of them are omnivores. So in general, mammals tend to be omnivores. We are not uh, unique in that sense. But if you look at the diet, most of them had 70% or more coming from either plant or from animal. So the conclusion of the people who wrote the paper is that mammals are specialized omnivores. Okay, well, you can be omnivore and you can be specialized. Mm. So my, my uh, assertion is that Yes, we are omnivore. I can't deny it. We we have uh, we have uh, the capacity to consume uh, plants, but uh, we could not be so flexible because what I told you at the beginning, the energetic return. If the energetic return is low, you just cannot be so flexible. You have to get your calories, and. Uh, and you see it in the evolution. You see, for instance, that the large intestine, which really is a, an organ to consume plants, to get energy from plants. Most plants have very high uh, fiber. And the way to extract energy from that fiber is, to, is in the uh, large intestines by bacteria, okay? By the way, the the product that you, you get the energy from is, of course, uh, fat, yeah? A special kind of fat, short-chain fatty acids. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but, but, but it's a fat. So most animals, by the way, most animals get a lot of their energy from fat. 
uh, whether from fiber, from, from bacteria, or, or from uh, eating fat. So, uh, so in any case, uh, the evolution of humans, if you, if you take a chimpanzee as like a, a, a beginning, uh, we have large intestines that are smaller by 77%, according to my calculations. Wow. That of a chimpanzee, the same size, if a chimpanzee had the same size as ours. So you see that the evolution is away from plants. You, you ought, now you have a disadvantage of, uh, from getting plants because you cannot utilize all the energy in the plants. And now, as promised, we're gonna cut away to hear from Dr. Bill Schindler. This is a bit of a longer clip, and I did this deliberately. The, the discussion will drift away just a little bit from protein, but I think it's really relevant, and he makes some really good points about plant foods versus animal foods, which is something we've covered a little bit in our discussion so far. And I thought Dr. Bill Schindler did such a great job talking about this. He does such a great job illustrating this in his book. Again, it's called Eat Like a Human. So let's hear from him. Like I said, it's gonna be a little bit longer of a, of a discussion, but I will think you'll find this relevant. We have one of the least efficient digestive tracts of any animal on the planet. And it's a, it's a huge conversation. I, I dive into it in depth in the book. But the reality is we are not physically designed to eat most of the foods that we consume today and even in the past. We, uh, and, and it's really odd to say that. Wow, what do, what do you mean? We eat all these foods. We've been eating them for hundreds of years or thousands of years or tens of thousands of years. Aren't humans omnivores? Well, yes, humans are omnivores but not by design, not because we were designed to consume all these foods that we eat, right? We don't have a digestive tract like a cow that is specifically set up to properly digest efficiently and safely tough vegetable materials. We don't have a digestive tract like a goose or a duck or another granivorous bird that's specifically designed to safely and efficiently uh, get the nutrition from things like grains. We don't have any of those things. So, but but we are omnivores. How can that be? And the re we're omnivores by technology because over millions of years, our ancestors created uh, technologies and behaviors and approaches to food to transform it before it touches our lips, to literally get it ready for our incredibly weak and inefficient digestive tract to safely and efficiently make use of that food. That's the key. That's what humans do differently than all other animals that we process the food when we do it right properly before it touches our lips. So, and most of the technologies created over really, and, and, I, and, I, and I'm not overstating this at all, almost three and a half million years, beginning with the first stone tool, these technologies were designed to take a resource that in many cases we have no business consuming, make it safe, make it nutrient dense, and most importantly, make it bioavailable. In other words, make those nutrients available to our digestive tract. So when we consume that food, we're getting the nutrition going to the places it needs to go in our bodies. That's the key. And that's the how part. So that we've been asking this question, what, which is important, which is the same question you just asked me, like what, you know, what about the apple? What apples? That's important. And we'll talk about that in a second. But what's really also important to, to, to comprehend is that when we do it right, 
we use technologies to transform those resources into their safest and most nourishing forms possible before we consume them and get them ready for our bodies. That's the, the cooking piece of it, whether it's it's cooking or fermenting or slicing or dicing or nishtamalizing or, or, or co-eating with different things. That's, that's the thing that we need to bring back into our kitchen. Because I've said in the past five minutes, the word processing probably a dozen times. And most of us, when we think about food processing, like, oh my gosh, that's terrible. And it is. The way the modern food industry processes food today, most of it is terrible. Most of it is at the expense of safety and nutrient density and nutrient bioavailability. And at, at its ultimate you know, end, end result is it's at the expense of our own health. But what it's doing is making other people a whole lot of money, right? But the, the food processing we need to get back is to make the food safe and nourishing as possible. So that's the foundation of it. And, and, and the cool thing is all of this is doable in your home kitchen. It doesn't matter if you live in a tiny little flat in New York City or a mansion on the top of a mountain in Montana with the, you know, the most well-outfitted kitchen on the planet. You have all, almost or you have all the things you need to to process that food properly. Now our ancestors are doing it in caves with sticks and rocks and fire and clay pots. We certainly have the things that we need to have um, already. So as far that, that how piece is incredibly important. The what piece also is important. And there is a little bit of overlap. So you mentioned the apples 365 days a year. Well, we think of that as, as a, the ability to take produce and make it available all year round as this, as this wonderful thing and a, you know, this result of modern technology and transportation and shipping and refrigeration and freezing and all that. And the reality is we have never, ever in the history of our species had access to the same vegetable or fruit all year round. It's impossible. And when we come from the mindset that the most nourishing things we can be eating as fruits and vegetables, and it, which is not true. But if, if that was true, um, you know, it just follows, the thinking follows is, wow, if some of this is good, more of it's better. So if I can get it two weeks out of the year naturally, then let me, if I can get it 365 days a year, because I can get it shipped in from Argentina and Peru and wherever else, and I can have it frozen, then that's even better. But when you dive into it and look more deeply and, and you understand that, no, we've actually been eating seasonally for millions of years. In fact, hyper seasonally and hyper local for, for a very long period of time. Then, and we start to realize that while plants have nutrition that is valuable, plants are inherently dangerous, right? And we can talk about this in just a few minutes, but what I, I mention it now to say, one of the issues that we've caused by making fruits and vegetables the same ones available all year round is we have created a danger in our food system that we're just starting to now realize we're, we're, we're taking plants and I'll bring up spinach as an example, plants that have certain toxins in them. In the case of spinach, it's incredibly high in oxalates that if you ate spinach for the two weeks out of the year that, you know, it would grow in your area out in, in, a, in a field, then no big deal. But if you take that and eat it literally every single day or, or every single week, all year round, you're starting to create uh, the, the toxicity level is going to build up in your bodies and it's going to cause all sorts of issues. And we're starting to actually realize that today. 
spinach. <laughs> You're talking about what everybody would ubiquitously consider a healthy food. And we were fortunate enough to have Sally Norton on, and she's obviously an expert in oxalate. And it's absolutely bananas. And people don't consider that seasonality. I've heard you talk about this before. And you've said that plants should scare the hell out of you. What do you mean by that? <laughs> That's the opening line of my chapter on plants in the book. Um, <laughs> Listen, first of all, I just got to say, Sally Norton is fantastic. And I, and I, and I will give her, uh, I, I will always give her an amazing amount of credit. She one conversation with her about oxalates a couple years ago literally changed my life. She is, with the work she's doing is literally that powerful. Um, and I, thankfully, she's coming out with a book and it should be available in just a couple months. Um, and I, and it's going to be, it, it's going to, it's going to change lives. So, here, here's the story with plants. First off, we have taken away seasonality in our grocery stores. And the more removed we are from our food system and the longer our food chain is, right? Um, and the more, the more distance we are from our food, the less we have direct access to the knowledge about our food, where it comes from, how it should be prepared, what nourishing forms of it actually are. And the more we start to rely on other people who... Some of them certainly have our best interest or our interest at heart, but most of them are trying to make money. And the power, giving up the power of food and nourishment to somebody else is incredibly dangerous. And you know, there's direct marketing campaigns and people in lab coats playing with flavor profiles of food that are there to trick us and, and make us buy more food and overeat and do all these other sorts of things. And we know this. But one thing that's also um, a little bit less in your face, but probably even more powerful is literally what is in the grocery stores. What we see in the grocery stores subli is our, our subliminal messages to tell us what food is and what food isn't. Right. It, you know, if we were hunter gatherers and we're out there foraging and hunting every day and we see the seasons change and we see the animals migrate in and we see this is available then and this plant is you know not available at this point, it's just you know, we, we would naturally recognize this is food. This isn't food. This is food this time of year. This isn't food that time of year. because I can't get it at all. But when we go into the grocery store and we see asparagus all year round and we see apples all year round and every one of them looks exactly the same and the eggs are exactly the same size. And then we see chicken breast here and, and, you know, there's a ton of chicken breast over here. There's a few thighs and maybe, maybe, there's a container stuck in the back that has some livers in it, but probably if you see livers in your grocery store, most of the time it's in the bait section for the food. You know, it, it really, that, that experience right there shapes how you envision, you know, your foodscape, what you have access to, what food is and what food isn't right then and there. You know, you don't see any chicken skin. You don't see any chicken hearts. You don't see any chicken gizzards. You don't see any bones. You don't see any feet. You don't see, you know, uh, misshapen apples. You don't, you, you do see asparagus all year round. You don't see an empty slot where the asparagus is when it's not in season. All of that are, you know, powerful subliminal messages that shape the way you view your food and what a healthy diet should and shouldn't be. So and that's really, really problematic. Another, so I say the plants should scare the hell out of you because here we're coming in as really uninformed consumers, right? Because our information is coming from the people trying to sell us the food, which is, which is, which is problematic. The people that are stocking the grocery store or uh, um, deciding where things are stocked in the grocery store. And we're really at a loss from, from the first moment we walk into the grocery store. I think many of us, and I know I used to do this with this idea that plants are incredibly healthy 
and you 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 push your shopping cart into the produce section. You say, "Oh my gosh, if I'm going to get healthy, this is the week I'm going to get healthy. This is the week I'm going to make my family healthy." And you look around in the produce section. You're like, "Some of this is good." Everybody tells me that this is all good. So if some of it's good, more of it's even better. And you do one of the most dangerous things when you're deciding how to feed yourself and your family and you shut your brain off, you shut your filters off and you just start loading the cart with all kinds of vegetables. And then maybe you move on and get a couple other things. The problem is all plants are toxic. All of them. Every plant on this planet is toxic. And The reason is because plants are trying to do exactly what every other living thing on this planet needs to do to survive, reproduce viable offspring. Now, animals have a lot of ways to defend themselves and make sure that their their, um, offspring are viable and can reproduce and are safe and all that. They have claws and teeth and, you know, skunks have, uh, you know, smells and also they can fly away. They can do all sorts of things. Plants can't move. Like plants just, they don't move. So there are some physical defense mechanisms from plants, things like thorns and hard shells on nuts and bark on trees and those sorts of things for sure. But the reality is all plants are engaging in chemical warfare to survive, reproduce viable offspring so they make sure they don't go extinct. Now, some of these toxins are benign. Like they, they don't do, they're at such low levels, they don't, they don't do a whole lot. We don't have to really worry about them. Some of them, like toxins in certain mushrooms, for example, will kill you outright. But most of these toxins and the ones that we really need to be afraid of are there and can build up in our bodies over time. And they don't and they, and they can cause a lot of problems later on or they cause little tiny problems here and there for a very long period of time until we, you know, we get hit with it full blown. And the problem with that kind of toxin in plants is that we don't associate it. There's such a distance between the consumption of that plant and the problem associated with it. Or it's happening at such a low level for so long that we don't associate the two of those things together. I mean, if we ate a mushroom and and was violently ill the next day, then we know, hey, that mushroom made me really sick. But if we're eating spinach, and then we're eating spinach, and then we're eating spinach, and then several months later, you know, we're getting out of bed, and you know, our knees are achy, and our feet are, you know, they our feet hurt, and you're a little bit creaky going up the steps, and you're 40 years old, like, oh, this is just old age, you know, because we've kind of normalized these things. You don't associate it, especially because the media is telling us that spinach is amazing for us. I had, I have no idea why we were listening to a cartoon from 50 years ago. Tell us that spinach <laughs> was, but, but we, 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 we've bought into this and, and then we can have all sorts of these issues. So the cool thing for, or cool isn't the right word. The, um, uh, powerful thing about being a hunter gatherer, right. You know, hunter gatherer ancestors is that, they realized that these plants, because they were they were dealing with them all the time, these plants had toxins in them. And in, in many cases, they've they figured out technologies and approaches to those toxic foods to detoxify them and make them safer to eat. Um, other ones, they just knew to stay away from. Other ones, they realized, by, by default, they didn't even realize that they only had access to it seasonally. Right. And then and all these this was this is what a close connection to your food system can provide you. But now with us going in thinking that's all vegetables and fruits are incredibly healthy. They're great for you. Eat them all year round. Things we've labeled foods as superfoods, which drives me nuts. Spinach being one of them, eat some of them, eat a ton of them. Everything's going to be fine. And then we have a huge issue with it. With The reality is we need to be scared and respectful of plants. We need to realize that when we consume plants, 
There are plants that have good nutrition for us, but it always comes at a little bit of a cost. Now, maybe the nutrition or the pleasure we get from eating that outweighs the cost of, of, of eating that, whether we're taking in some oxalates or some lectins or some phytates or whatever it is that the, the problem that that plant has, it, it may outweigh it, but it, it requires our thinking to decide whether or not it makes sense to eat that. One, what part of the year should I be eating it? How much should I be consuming of it? And most importantly, what can I do to that plant to make it as safe and nourishing as possible before me or my family eats it? And I know this sounds overwhelming to some people like, oh my God, this is one more thing for me to think about. And it is, and that's good. I mean, we are sicker than we've ever been as a species right now because of the way we feed ourselves. We can crawl out of this hole, but it takes vigilance. It takes time. It takes it takes work and effort. But I'm telling you, it is a rewarding, is such a rewarding journey when you start to feel better. I'm 48 years old. I, I was a division one athlete at Ohio State. I wrestled there and I am 48 years old now and I'm in the best, best health of my entire life. I don't care what age you are. It is worth paying attention and taking these steps because it will pay off in droves. So I really appreciate those two insights from those archaeologists, Dr. Mickey Bendor and Dr. Bill Schindler. I think they've got a really interesting way of looking at things through the glass of evolution. And Dr. Mickey Bendor in particular has done so much research and publications and, and, and study about the humans and how we have evolved with different attributes that clearly suggest that we come from a more carnivorous background and that that should be our primary fuel source. Um, one paper in particular that he wrote is Are We Carnivores? Uh, I believe he released that in 2019 and it talks about all of our different physical attributes. Our ability to run great distances like endurance running, our ability to throw things indicated that we could hunt in that particular way. Uh, things like our stomach acidity. Our stomachs are extremely acidic and so that means we can kill off pathogens and bacteria from meat that could have been hunted you know, even several weeks ago. So I think there's a lot of really strong connections there. I do really like his insight where he says, yes, we are omnivore but we do specialize it's not to say that we can do 50 percent plants and 50 percent animal products i believe it suggests that we should primarily be getting our calories and protein and fat from animal products and then supplementing with some plants and then taking the advice from dr bill schindler we need to be very very careful about the plants that we are eating and how we're preparing them and remembering that it is our humanness to be able to create technologies and prepare our calories outside of the body because we don't have the same stomach systems that, that cows have or other animals that are able to eat grasses, eat cellulose, and turn that into short-chain fatty acids in the stomach. And so I really appreciate those two viewpoints. Let's go back to Dr. Ben Bickman so we can finish out our thoughts on insulin and protein in the diet. There is, there, it, it makes me very curious how people could claim that humans are not omnivores we are or even more carnivore than we are herbivore a human cannot cannot live on plants alone that is a diet that is incompatible with human survival now someone's saying well i know a vegan or i'm a vegan and i can do it uh, veganism if it if someone is surviving on it is a privilege of the elite this is a person who must know what nutrients they are deficient in because they will absolutely be deficient in nutrients. So they have to have a sufficient level of education to know that. And second, they have to have a significant, a sufficient level of wealth to afford the supplements um, that they're missing. 
That's a really fine. good point. That is a person who can survive on a vegan diet. So humans are not herbivores. However, you can take a human that is living on nothing but a carnivore, a carnivorous diet, and they will survive perfectly fine. And I mean it. There will be no nutritional deficiencies. So we have, we can live as carnivores, and, and but but we but we can also um, subsist perfectly fine with plants in our diet. So we are omnivores. We're built that way, and so I think that it's it's comfortable to just say we're omnivores and leave it at that. But back to your sort of initial. Um, sentiment, uh, our ancestors would have certainly enjoyed carbohydrates whenever they could get them. But thankfully, carbohydrates are not essential um, to the human survival. There are such things as essential fats. There are such things as essential amino acids, and we get them all in any source of animal foods. And there is no such thing as an essential carbohydrate, nothing, zero zilch. There's absolutely nothing essential about it. All this focus on polyphenols and plant metabolites like resveratrol and, you know, whatever, that's all fun. That's all neat stuff. But humans do not need it to survive. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't eat them, therefore. I'm not saying that. But I am saying, I guess, don't let that be the focus of your diet the one macronutrient that is not essential and coincidentally happens to have the biggest effect on insulin. Focus on the two macronutrients that are essential and coincidentally have the least effect on insulin. I thought it was really important to hear from both men and women in this discussion of protein intake. So now we are going to go to Nikki Krendel, who is a dietetic student studying in Australia. She follows a carnivore diet, as you can hear in our episode that we did with her. That was back in 225 for health reasons, um, which is really interesting. She is a very, very smart person who is really interested in the science behind eating and protein intake and strength training and everything. So we're going to hear from her. We're going to start out listening to her respond to why strength training is so important. So again, this isn't exactly starting out with protein, but it's very much related and very relevant. And so I thought we'd throw that in. She's also going to discuss the difference between animal proteins and plant proteins, which we've discussed a little bit. And she's going to give her opinion there also on intake. I want to talk about for sure muscle, building muscle, why that is so important. Um, I know it's a passion of yours, but let's start with the why. Why is muscle and, and muscle mass so important? Well, as you get older, we do tend to not be able to maintain muscle as easily. Um, we, we become a little bit insensitive to, um, to the growth factors around muscle building. So, um, yeah, that's a bit annoying. Uh, but I think if you provide it with enough stimulus and the right amount of protein, you can maintain and build muscle as you get older. I don't think that means that you can't build muscle anymore. I think it's important for several reasons. I think for the obvious one is um, metabolism. I mean, muscle is such a, a massive uh, energy sink. So the more muscle that you have, the more metabolically active it is. And it takes a lot of energy to just hold on to that muscle. To just have it there is, is metabolically very taxing for the body. So um, when it comes to staying lean and, um, you know, or, or, and or losing weight, I think it's very, very important to have as much muscle on your body as you can because then basically just sitting there, you're burning more calories than you would if you didn't have muscle. I think as you age, it's important because imagine that you're, you're an elderly person and you don't have any muscle around your bones and, and you fall over and you put your arm out to stop yourself. 
muscle is is one of the things that can um, shock absorb. You know, it, it stops you for it stops your bones from just being bone on floor and snapping. So um, I think muscle is very very important for as you, particularly as you get quite elderly. Um, so yeah, I, I just think muscle having a lot of muscle on you is is it really really improves your insulin sensitivity. Um, yeah, it's it, it's one of the best things that you can do for your health. I think. Yeah, totally agree. One of the components of building muscle is getting protein intake, and I can get you know protein from animal foods, but I could also get protein from things like beans or you know berries, not berries, excuse me, uh, grains or whatever. W- what is the difference between plant proteins versus animal proteins? So we ha- we have twenty amino acids, and nine of them are, are essential. And animal foods are the only ones that can give you the essential amino acids. They're the, they're the amino acids that we can't create in our body. We have to get them from our food. So you very, very, very quickly can become deficient in, um, in protein. And interestingly, there is one, uh, my favorite amino acid is called leucine. And um, it is one of the essential amino acids. You cannot get that from plant foods. And it is actually essential for building muscle. So you need to, in order to um, stimulate muscle protein synthesis, you need a certain amount of leucine, which is about two to three grams, um, and and that will stimulate muscle protein synthesis. So um, the problem with plant foods is that it does provide protein, but they are not the protein, they are not the amino acids that we truly, truly need in order to build muscle. Mm. I'm so glad you wanted to talk about leucine. How, about how many grams of animal protein does it take to get enough leucine to trigger muscle protein synthesis or building muscle? Yep. So we're looking at about two to three grams of leucine and you'd get that from, it depends on, it does depend on the, the leanness versus the, the fattiness of the meat. Obviously the fattier the meat is, then the less muscle meat you'd have within that uh, piece. So you would need to have more in order to get the amount of protein. So I would say about 200 to 250 grams of, um, protein gives you two to three grams of leucine. So I see it as a 250 gram piece of steak or a two, 200 gram piece of chicken. So as I said, the leaner you go on the, on the, um, animal meat, the more protein you get per gram. So that's probably just made it even more confusing. But if you go, say, to chicken breast, you could probably do about 200 grams. If you're going something like ribs, you'd probably need more 250 to 300 grams mm. to get the same amount. Yeah, that's very well explained. If I'm like trying to picture this like visually, would we say like maybe like two of the palm of your hand type kind of size would be about the ballpark that you would want? Again, it depends on the type. But do you think visually that would be a good way to think about it? That's exactly what I usually go for. So if, uh, yeah, I go for two, two, two palms of mine, that's what I would go for in a meal. Mm. Ah, that's great. About how much protein do you recommend daily for most people? Yeah, that's a tricky one. And I'm still trying to find the answer to that. I wouldn't go under one, one gram per pound. Hang on. Now I get myself confused because it's often in pounds and, and kilograms. I personally, so I'm about 105 pounds. And I go for about 100 grams. So, yeah, one one gram per pound. I wouldn't go under that. I would say that's the base. Gotcha. 
one gram per pound as, as the low level. I mean, think about that compared to the recommendations that were given. It, that, it, that's absurd. Mm. It is absurd. It is absurd. That should be the base. And then if you're active, I would definitely go way over that, really. I mean, look, we all get a lot, uh, we all get very worried about kidney health when it comes to protein. But from what I've read, um, kidney health improves as as protein consumption increases. Um, I kind of, I've heard people say that, uh, you know, it's like, it's like a muscle. The more you use it, the better, the stronger it gets. Um, I haven't seen any problems in the research with um, kidney health and protein. I just haven't seen it. So, um, yeah, no, I, I think you can just go as, as high as your satiety levels ask you to, I guess. Uh, for me, some days I want more, some days I want less, but I usually would not go under about uh, 100 grams a day. These next two clips are going to focus specifically on protein recommendations on ketogenic diets. This is something that we get asked about all the time. And so the next two clips are going to address those things directly, although the two guests will have differing opinions. And so we're just going to leave them both here for you so that you can decide how you want to approach this. We are first going to learn from Tyler Cartwright, who has been in the keto world for a very, very long time. And he's going to address here the idea of limiting protein, whether or not that's a really good idea. And then we'll go to Robert Sykes, who is the keto savage and runs a keto savage podcast. So many people were really afraid of protein and really wanted to keep the protein low, but were having issues with muscle mass or maybe over-consuming fats. Can you tell us a little bit about what you were noticing as far as your recommendations along the lines of protein and low carbohydrate? So there was a time when Dr. Atkins used to say, eat liberally from all fish and fowl, right? Like he wasn't constraining protein, nor was he really constraining fat. He was also known for saying, uh, I don't, I'm not saying calories don't count. I'm saying don't count calories. And I think that he was trying to bring forward an idea to people that eating a more satiating diet really would sort of self-restrict or self-limit the amount of calories that you were actually consuming in a day. You just didn't really need to do those things in order to have at least some early successes. Somewhere along the line, and I'm not entirely sure when the switch flipped, but I have some suspicions, but there are people in the community and I respect them enough to, you know, too much to, to call them out too badly. But there just started to be this narrative that you could overeat protein and it would kick you out of ketosis. And I'm sure this will be audio only. So I'm using air quotes around those expressions. So uh, there's a little bit of snark intended here. But the, the problem is, while that may be true, the amount that would be necessary would be so astronomically high that it didn't make any sense. And so what we found was that people were sort of intentionally limiting protein and there was this narrative that you got to eat fat to lose fat. And so they, you know, anytime that people would stall in a diet, their answer was just, I'm going to go chug more fat or I'm going to go, uh, it's a little cliche, but, you know, throw a stick of butter on the side of the plate and eat that stick of butter with my eggs or whatever. And every time I think about that, I pray for my toilet. Like that just sounds like a terrible, terrible way to live life. But there just became this narrative. And then people started really getting wrapped around the axle of like the three to one ratio and the four to one ratio stuff that exists out there. Um, and they somehow took that data, which was intended to look at the caloric 
composition of a diet, the energy of the diet, and say three to one is a ratio of energy or four to one is a ratio of energy, and they transmuted that in some way, my guess is because they'd never read the research and they didn't think about it, um, to mass. And so they started saying that like, if I was going to have 100 grams of protein, I would have to have 300 grams of fat or, or 400 grams of fat. They, they really got married to these ratios. And you know, we would get people showing up in the community saying, I'm already eating a 70, 30 you know, or 70, 25, five diet. You know, why am I not losing weight? And I'm like, Hey, great. That's ratios. Is that of 10,000 calories a day or a thousand calories a day? Well, I don't know. Here's a guess of what I'm eating in the course of it. I'm like, well, unfortunately it's kind of that, which isn't measured, can't be managed. I can't really give you any insight there, but I see the switch that flipped and that switch that flipped was People didn't think about the fact that a gram of fat has about nine calories per gram versus protein. So you're already at four calories. So you're already at over two times the energy composition, even at a one-to-one by mass. And so realistically, if you go to like a one and a half to one by mass, you're already at a three-to-one as an energy composition, a little more, almost four-to-one. So you start to kind of have, it's a little bit of, there's a frustration that happens, but then there's also this empathy that sort of comes in to go, man, I, I have missed it on so many different things. It's hard for me to be mad at somebody or upset, but trying to correct that narrative has been uh, a life's work at this point, I think, just trying to help people because the biggest challenge and, and you know, I think Luis nailed it when he said that eating protein and building muscle mass now is like a savings account for your retirement age or your your elderly years. Because when you get to be 50, 60, 70, putting on even a pound of lean mass is basically uh, you know, a blessing from the, you know, from the 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 fate or whatever, because it's almost impossible to do outside of those early sort of newbie gains where you might get a few pounds before it shuttles off. The best thing that people can do is be eating enough protein and training and exercising now to build that up. And they just were restricting protein because the narrative was if you're not losing, you're either eating too little fat or too much protein. And so they would shift the balance again. And it broke my heart because the data really doesn't support any of those claims. And you know, when we look at those things, those ratios didn't exist for fat loss diets. They existed for intractable epilepsy. Um, you know, those diets were used for juvenile cases of epileptic disorders that did not respond well, like refractory epilepsy, where they didn't respond well to medication like uh, pharmacologic intervention. And so they would give these, these, these diets based on these ratios. But when you look at the outcomes data for those children that went through those things, they were stunted in size. They had less muscle mass than their peers. They tended to have shorter lifespans. And that's a sad thing until you realize that you you dance with the devil you know. You know that this can help control seizure disorders. It's going to help prolong brain activity, brain life. It's going to help to, to live a more robust life. You accept the consequences of this are less detrimental than the consequences of that. But to take that data and try and extrapolate that to a non-epileptic person who's simply trying to lose body mass or lose body fat or to take that data 
And, you know, another good example is to like take data from, from type one diabetics and apply it to non-diabetics or to type two diabetics even doesn't make any sense. It's like taking rodent studies with blind faith and applying them to people without actually testing that data. Um, and I think that's really what happened. I think a lot of people just got, and I hate these terms scared of protein because that sounds ridiculous, but they started to see it as the cause of their lack of fat loss rather than the single best thing they could be eating. So that was one opinion about protein recommendations on a ketogenic diet. So let's now go to Robert Sykes from Keto Savage so that he can give us his opinion as well. Let's talk about some of the other macronutrients, especially uh, protein. How important is protein in your diet and what kind of numbers are you typically targeting for yourself, but also your clients? Yeah, so protein is super important. Like protein, um, it, it's interesting because as the keto space has evolved over the years, I've seen it in which you know everybody was avoiding protein for risk of gluconeogenesis and they assumed that protein would turn into chocolate cake once it entered your bloodstream. Not the case. And now the, the opposite of the spectrum the pendulum has swung so far that people are prioritizing protein to the point that they're minimizing fat unnecessarily. And they're basically giving protein this golden halo and it can do no wrong. You, can, you can't overconsume protein is what they're suggesting. As is true with most things, the answer lies somewhere in the middle. You need protein. You absolutely want to have protein to repair and build more muscle tissue. Um, it's incredibly important to macronutrient, but not at the expense of enough dietary fats. That's where you're getting your energy. You can make energy with little dietary fat, little carbohydrates, through protein alone uh, via gluconeogenesis, but that shouldn't be your prioritized and your preferred form of energy production because it's not an efficient process. So uh, it's going to be different for everybody. I mean, one's own uh, personal energy expenditures are going to dictate things, how much muscle they're carrying is going to have an effect. There's a lot of variables to play as to how much protein a person should consume, but a good general rule of thumb for most people is if you're consuming about a gram of protein per pound of lean mass, um, or you know, 1.5 grams of protein per pound of lean mass, you can certainly get things dialed in and be pretty healthy around that intake. Okay, so 1.5 grams per pound of lean mass. I love that recommendation. A lot of people would say, wow, that is way too high. You're going to cause damage to the kidneys or the liver or all kinds of crap that I hear people say about over-consuming protein. How would you respond to that? There's just not really any literature that suggests that over-consuming protein is going to be damaging to the kidneys, especially if you're, if you, you're taking in enough total calories and enough dietary fat. I mean, if you're, you know, 150 pound individual and you're taking in 400 grams of protein, that's unnecessary. That may be damaging, but who in the world would want to consume 400 grams of protein? That's a lot of chicken breast and tilapia. And that's just no fun at all. But if you're consuming about, you know, one gram per pound of lean mass, 1.5 grams per pound of lean mass, you're active, you're working out, you're hiking or, you know, being burned some calories, then yeah, taking in that amount is going to be super healthy totally within that normal healthy range is going to allow you to build muscle and recover. You shouldn't have any issues in that regard. Yeah, that's great. I've heard you answer this before, and I find this really interesting. And I see a really strong argument on either side. You have shifted from eating several meals a day to eating a few meals a day that are more, you know, more volume. You're eating a lot more when you're eating those meals. People make the argument that you need to get at least 30 to 40 grams of protein somewhere in that ballpark to get enough leucine to trigger muscle protein synthesis. And you want to trigger that a lot of times. So that's the argument to say, like, you do want to have, you know, multiple meals in a day, more meals in a day to be able to get that much protein to have that trigger, you know, 
tripped every few hours to be always be in muscle protein synthesis where, you know, I, I've heard you talk about this in the past again, like having, you know, less meals, but having more volume and getting enough protein is totally adequate to be able to achieve that. What do you think about that? Yeah. So I think, I think the, I haven't seen any compelling research that suggests that if you don't eat every three or four hours that you're leaving much muscle growth potential on the table. If you're consuming enough totally total dietary protein intake, then you should be totally fine in that regard. I mean, you're going to, you have to worry so much about hitting that anabolic window that we all feared, you know, way back in the day. I mean, I would literally go crazy if I didn't have a protein shake within 20 minutes of working out, assuming that I was just, all my gains were for not. Waste you know, of time. Not, yeah. Yeah. It's not the way it works. I mean, if you're taking in enough protein, enough calories, uh, you know, over the course of a 24 hour period, then you should be totally fine in regards to building the muscle, recovering from the training session. So I wouldn't really worry too much in that regard. Um, again, you want to make sure you're consuming enough protein in that window, but I mean, it takes some time to digest and assimilate those nutrients. So it's not like it's going to be dissipated instantly. I mean, especially if you're following a ketogenic diet, in which case the fat that you're ideally pairing with that protein slows the digestion and the absorption of that fat. So that's also another key factor. Yeah. I'm glad you pointed that out. The company I used to work with used to make us wear, I remember for, for some promotional period, like optimized by 45, which basically we were told, like, if you didn't get your shake in within 45 minutes of your workout, it, it's like we said, it was com like completely worth it, worthless. And yeah. over the years you kind of learn like, Oh wait, no, this is just a great way to sell a bunch of protein shakes down in the cafe. When people are done with their workouts, probably not that necessary. Yeah. Really good marketing though. <laughs> great marketing. Great marketing for sure. So I wanted to include those two different insights just so you could be thinking about different ways to approach things. I think Tyler and Robert would agree on so many different things, but it just seemed to me like they had a slightly different way of thinking about things where I believe Tyler was more in favor of having a high protein diet and not really worrying about getting too much protein, where Robert was maybe a little bit more concerned about making sure that the fat content was there. I think both points are valid and I'm just going to jump in here and, and play an exclusive clip. So this is another clip that has not appeared on any of our podcasts. We're going to go to Dr. Anthony Chafee, and we're going to hear his opinion on how to manage the protein to fat ratios. And he makes things uh, really easy. And I honestly kind of agree with him when I think about these things. I feel like the more we follow his advice, our bodies just kind of sort things out for themselves and we don't need to track things very tightly. And so let's go to that exclusive clip. Again, this is not found anywhere else. And let's see what his opinion is. So if you eating until you're really full is meeting your body's Thank you. energy expenditure. Thank you. Thank you. you know? And so, yeah, yeah that's your, your body knows better than you. Yeah. So, oh, I, I calculated this and this is what I'm going to need. You, you do not know your biochemistry better than your biochemistry knows itself. And so, you know, your body will ask for a certain, a certain amount of energy and it'll just say, yep, that's how much I want. When I'm working out more, I literally want double the amount of meat. Yep that I normally eat. Yep. And when I'm not doing anything, when I'm sedentary, like it just, it just goes down. Like I don't need as much when I was carrying extra body fat, um, you know, early on, like, it's just, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't eat some days at all, even though I worked out for six hours, you know, my body's just like, no, no, you're good fatty. Like just put the steak down, you know? So, um, you know, that, that, that was, that was weird for me too. Cause I'm like, no, 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 no I have to eat because I, you know, I worked out for six hours today and I'm going to work out for six hours tomorrow. Like I have to eat now because I, I have to have that energy. But obviously I had enough energy stored in my, in my fat, uh, tissue, my adipose tissue to last two months, yeah. you know, at a high level, you know, so, you know, uh, that's, uh, obviously not the case. And so that was a lesson I had to learn 
as well, but it's like, it's absolutely the case. No, you just, you just eat and your body takes care of the rest. Perfect. Yeah. So I spent most of my career working on a metabolic cart. And so we would measure resting metabolic rate, which is the whole reason I found low carb and keto and carnivore to begin with. These people would come in and say they were fasting and their metabolic rates would be hundreds of calories higher than what it should have been based on the demographic. You have no idea the variance that we would see with the people that we would actually physically measure versus where their equation was. And that is only assuming that that day, that 20 minute average that I took that, you know, whatever conditions, if they followed the protocol exactly, it's still just an assumption. We're still just extrapolating data. There's no way to tell. And then you guess energy expenditure on top of that and exercise on top of that. And it's like, we're making huge guesses, even using very expensive and, you know, really complicated equipment to validate this stuff. There's no way to know. Yeah. And, and that's really cool. I, I didn't, I didn't know that you uh, had that background, but that's a, that's a cool way of looking at it. You're just like, look, Hey, these people, you know, their, their bodies work better. Their metabolism working better, you know, like there must be something to that, you know, and, and you were, you're bang on because there, there is, you know, when you go into, you know, you stop eating carbohydrates, your basal metabolic rate jumps up by, you know, an average of 250 uh, kilocalories. You know what I mean? So it's just like, you know, people say, so oh, calories in calories out. It's like, you have no idea how many calories you are putting out in a That's day. Right. You may be able to sort of roughly figure how many you're taking in. You have no clue yep. how many you're putting out. And 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 what you put in designates and dictates how much you put out yep. as well, yep. based on what metabolic state you're in and based on uh, a number of different factors. But you know, if you have adipose tissue, your body's not going to want to use what you're taking in. It's going gonna, it's gonna to want to dump that out. But if you're not eating enough, you're telling your body that we're in a famine time and, oh, no, we got to store onto this. So it lowers your metabolic thank state you. down and lowers you, your you. metabolic rate. Thank you. Yeah. And so you, you actually find that people, when they're restricting their calorie restricting, even on a carnivore diet, they'll sort of not have the greatest results. And then all of a sudden they just say, you know what? Screw it. I'm just going to, I'm just going to eat what my body wants. And all of a sudden, then they start losing weight. They're eating more calories and they're losing more weight. Why is that? If it's calories in, calories out, that can't work. Yep. So it's not calories in, calories out. Clearly, because that is what happens. And, um, you know, there are some people, uh, but very few who sort of, you know, listen to their bodies and actually put on weight. Most of those people will, will come around and turn around though, you know, and the metabolism comes up, it speeds up and starts burning off excess. Yeah. And so, you know, and, and the thing is too, is like, you know, some people, you know, for whatever reason are, you know, going to put on weight for a little while, but it, it all comes full circle. And then eventually they, they start losing weight and, and they actually don't even want to eat as much. These next two clips I'm going to play are both going to be pretty brief. I made a last minute decision to include these in this episode because I thought it was a really interesting angle. And these were actually two different um, interviews that I did actually just this week. So this first clip is going to be with Rob Stewart. He is a skin health expert. You can follow him on Instagram at Stuart Rob Stewart. He works with low carbohydrate and carnivore diets to help people with all kinds of skin issues like eczema and rosacea. And, you know, we got talking about protein and I thought it was a really interesting you know, conversation that we can add here and, and more on the angle of skin health. After that, we're going to hear from Dr. Karen Zinn. She's out of New Zealand and she wrote a book called What the Face, which is all about um, low carbohydrate diets and skin health. So we're going to play these two clips now. Where do you put the focus with people? Is it, do you get better skin health results by focusing on fat or focusing on protein? 
Probably protein, to be honest with you. Um, the fats, like I said, are extremely important, but with most people, you just have to get the amount of fats that will produce the the alchemy that is needed to, to be healthy, you know, for your brain and for your hormones and for everything else. Also, if you're not getting saturated fats and cholesterol, then you're, you're probably not going to ever get vitamin D from the sun. So you have to get enough fat no matter what. But what I see is the people who don't eat enough protein across the board struggle with my clients that just under eat their protein or have an aversion to it. They're the hardest ones to figure out that puzzle piece it, with the protein high and the fat high. <clears throat> what I've seen comparatively to high carb is that the healing of the biomarkers, meaning your sleep, your testosterone, your sex drive, your ability to articulate words, your overall sense of well-being and your mood, your creativity, your athletic ability skyrocket extremely fast, like faster, like surprisingly fast. Even when I went through it, it was just like, man, I was an athlete my entire life and I'm getting gains. Like I'm kind of on steroids. Um, and, and the other hand, high carb that just doesn't, 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 doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah, totally. Oh, well, we're so glad that you prioritize protein. That's something we've definitely learned along the way as well. How do you think about collagen protein as either something that needs to be in the diet or something that needs to be supplemented? You know, I think for me, um, I try to be open-minded to everything. And I, I definitely don't come from the school of, I know what's best. I come from the school as I'm, I'm got my white belt on and I'm traveling around to different dojos, getting my ass kicked so I can learn. Um, and what I've found is kind of across the board with my clients, I steer them away from anything powder, anything related to supplementation, not because it doesn't have its place, but because it's, it's like, um, it's kind of like focusing on trying to throw a curveball before you can pick up baseball, first pick up the baseball, then be able to throw the baseball, then be able to throw that fastball, then down the line, the curveball will come. It's kind of more of also what are the, the behaviors that will take you to where you need to go? And the behaviors are eat animal-based, workout daily, sleep well, and get in the sun. And we're going to start there with everybody. Now, do does collagen, the nutrient collagen and collagen peptides have a place in healing the skin? Oh, for sure. Definitely. They're, they're one of the most magic nutrients there is for skin health. Um, that's why there's a whole industry built around supplementation of them, for sure. But I think getting them from whole food, natural sources definitely is, is the way to go, especially at first. Now let's talk about someone who has been consistent with their diet. They're getting a full spectrum of different animal foods and animal proteins and animal fats, and, and they're hitting everything, but something's lacking. That's when I will reach for collagen peptides in powder form or pill form, or possibly um, things like liver supplements or organ meat supplements to round out nutrient profile and allow people to actually get, get what they need. And, and also there's a big behavioral component to all of this. Some people at the end of the day, just won't be able to eat the great foods all the time. And, and for those people, supplementation is probably going to be something that they'll have to use as a crutch and, and works way better than the alternative. So that was Rob Stewart. Again, he's a skin health expert. And now we're going to hear from Dr. Karen Zinn, who is the co-author of What the Face. What are some of the, the most beneficial foods that people can be eating for skin health? 
Um, you know, I, I think um, I think it's the, the the template of that that whole food. So looking at good quality proteins. I mean, you, you've got you look at the, the the building blocks of the skin. You've got your um, collagen, um, elastin. You, you you know, you've got your pro your, your three kind of sister proteins there. Um, that are really, really important for, um, for for building optimal skin health. So good quality protein and enough protein. And I think, like I said earlier, protein doesn't really get um, it doesn't it doesn't get the press it, it should do. Um, I think in the old days we were so focused on oh you know bodybuilders eat too much protein and too much protein is so you know so bad for the system, bad for the kidney, and bad for the whatever. Um, and we've gone the other way, you know, um, and particularly in the beginning with the whole ketogenic diet, you need to keep your protein intake low. But that that has moved really, um, and and now we're seeing a push towards optimal protein. Uh, protein has got um, got that added benefit of improving satiety. Um, so good quality protein sources are really important for building healthy skin, but also the the fats, particularly the omega three fats. Um, so we talk a lot about the omega-3, omega-6 ratio and um, something to avoid being seed oils uh, because they've got high omega-6 and you've got, you know, you, there's some issues there with, with, with the ratio, but also they're kind of factory manufactured fats. So, again, um, focusing on, um, you know, animal sources, but also, you know, plants, plant sources uh, as well of, of omega-3 fats. And, yeah, so – so the fat and the protein were two major focuses, but also um, the, the micronutrients as well. And this might be a bit kind of uh, antagonistic for the, the carnival folk, but we do go into the importance of um, certain certain nutrients like, you know, biotin um, and, and some of the other kind of lesser well-known um, micronutrients and how important they are for, for optimal skin health and, and gut health. Wow. No, that's great. You are the second person we've interviewed this week um, that is an expert in skin health and has told us that protein is the most important thing and make sure you're getting adequate mm -hmm. protein. Somebody sent me an article. <laughs> so ridiculous. Somebody sent me an article this week and said, hey, what do you think about this? And it was, it, it was called something like the seven signs that you're eating too much protein. And there were all like these ridiculous symptoms that I've never heard of and was recommending for most adults they need to take in about I, th I think it's at like 53 grams of protein per day and to like sub out things like you know get the animal fats out get the animal um, protein out make sure you're eating plenty of soy like oh my goodness like I cannot believe what I'm reading out there as far as protein yeah, goes shocking. that that, yeah. that message has to die <laughs> Has Absolutely. Die. And I think, you know, that whole, um, the RDI or the RDA of 0 0.8 grams per kilogram body weight. So if you're weighing, you know, you know, if you're weighing, uh, I don't know, 60 kilos, that's sort of 50 odd grams of protein. I mean, I get that in my breakfast meal. Absolutely. Um, and I think, I, I think that, um, it, that, that, that is way too low. And, you know, you only have to look at the uh, powerlifting uh, literature and the bodybuilding—well, not so much the bodybuilding, but um, the 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 literature that that looks at strength training individuals, where they've done those studies um, and they've got the protein up to um, either four point four, I think even five point four wow. grams of protein per kilogram. So you know, someone who's eighty or ninety kilos, multiply that by five point four—that's a lot of protein. Yeah. And I'm not saying that's amount—that's an amount that I would 
um, tell people to eat. But the literature has looked at um, a range of health markers and have found that there is no insult um, to any of these markers with such high levels of protein. So it is a real myth. And I think there there is some issues if you are if you do have um, you know you've got pre-existing um, issues with your with your kidneys, you might think a, a little bit um, you know harder about it. you might get some some help to not go that high. Um, but I, th I think in the general population, we need to not be scared of going up to two grams of um, two grams of protein per kilogram body weight. Because also there's a discrepancy of the weight that you are now versus the weight that you want to be if you want to lose excess body fat. So I know in in uh, you know in your neck of the woods, you you tend to do it um, per pound of lean body mass. Yeah. Well, you have, you have to know what your lean body mass is, and you know the average individual doesn't. So, yeah. um, but anyway, bring, bringing it back, I do think that um, that protein needs to be um, needs to be on on the front stage a little bit more. Yeah, agreed. Thank you so much. We just always love reiterating that message. I, I replied to this person like, "This is a great way to make sure that you're going to waste muscle and have bone issues and end up in a nursing home at age 65, 70. Like that. That's where yeah. you're heading if you're eating that kind of thing." So this is the last clip that we are going to play that is coming from Boundless Body Radio. And we're going to go all the way back to episode 46 with Fred Hahn. Fred Hahn is an absolute OG when it comes to health and fitness. He has been getting a lot of things right for a very, very long time when it comes to building muscle and maintaining muscle, being very, very fit. He is well into his 50s and looks absolutely incredible. He's such a great guy to follow. I highly recommend following him. But we're going to get his thoughts on protein and also explore the context of fasting, which I find very, very interesting interesting and we will definitely cover fasting more in depth in a future episode of Balanced Body Premium Podcast. We cannot state enough how important it is to build muscle. One thing we haven't even talked about is all the other things that strength training accomplishes like like bone density or you know better connective tissue like there's so many other benefits we haven't even like scratch the surface on, let alone the muscle mass that you need to do those activities and do them well in the context of the skill that you want to go perform. Right, right. It, I mean, strength training improves cardiovascular health, as we mentioned, through the increased mitochondria, it increases bone density, it actually raises your HDL, there's good research on that, it improves blood pressure, enhances joint flexibility, increases muscle endurance, decreases low back pain, neck pain, arthritis, it controls your blood sugar because you have more muscle fibers, you have more, more cells to put the sugar in. Yep. It increases, obviously, it increases your lean tissue, uh, it accelerates your metabolic rate, it decreases abdominal fat. Um, it, it actually also improves mood, cognitive function. I mean, it's just, if, if you, you know, it is by far and away the single most potent form of exercise anybody can engage in. And I tell people, look, I'm not saying don't do your aerobics or whatever it is you enjoy, but strength training must be part of your life. And if it is anything you love to do, yoga, Pilates, running, it doesn't matter what it is, anything is going to get better. I love that. I completely agree with that statement. That's wonderful. Yeah. You mentioned carbohydrates. Another thing that most people think they know um, is that you absolutely need carbohydrates to build muscle. Do you need carbohydrates in your diet to build muscle? No. 
You don't need any carbohydrates at all. In fact, protein is what builds muscle. Carbohydrates don't build muscle. Carbohydrates are are either used for energy. I, I the, the the analogy I give clients is think of fat, fat and pro. Let's say you want to build a house. You want to and you and you have to hire workers. Fat and protein are like the expert. They're like the plumbers and the carpenters are coming in to build and fix things. Whereas carbohydrates is like the lazy teenager lying on the couch. It's just waiting around to do something, but it doesn't actually do anything unless it's used for energy. So when bodybuilders use carbohydrates, they use it to put more or less water in the muscle because that's how car, that's how intramuscular glycogen sugar carbohydrates get in and out of the muscle through a water molecule. So it's sort of like when you dehydrate steak to have jerky, it's, it's the same amount of protein in the jerky. It's just, there's no water. So water gets in and out of uh, muscular, intramuscular sugars get in and out of the muscle through a molecule of water. So carbohydrates don't build muscle. And if you eat adequate protein, any through a process called gluconeogenesis, any amount of blood sugar that is necessary is produced from the conversion of the protein you eat to sugar. So you can absolutely build muscle uh, and strength without eating any carbohydrate at all. Now, if you do eat some, what will happen is you're, and I think Dr. Volek and Finney and um, some of the other experts in the field have tested and measured on a zero carbohydrate ketogenic diet, your body will decrease the total amount of water within the muscle, intramuscular water, glycogen, up to about 60%. And then it halts. And then it shifts to fat burning. And, you know, that's ketogenesis. And that, so you start using fat as the main source of fuel rather than glycogen. But it spares a certain amount of glycogen within the muscle at about 50, 60% or so. I think I'm getting that right. And now, all of a sudden, you say, ah, the heck with it. I'm going to eat a pizza. Now, of course, where's all that blood sugar Where's all that sugar going to go? The first thing it's going to do is get shoved into your muscle cells. And that's why, like, if, if you've been low carbohydrate for a while and then you eat carbohydrate, all of a sudden you get swollen. Like, your mu- you can feel your muscles just swelling up because all of the blood sugar is being put into the muscle cells. And once the muscle cells are full, then it's going to go in, then it's going to convert to a lipid and be put into the fat cells. But you do not need any carbohydrate whatsoever to build strength and muscle mass. Fred Hahn is such a badass. I really love his approach. And we're going to continue listening to him as the discussion shifts just a little bit over to fasting, which I think is super interesting. And I do think it will definitely change protein intake recommendations. We've been saying through this episode that you really should be getting about one gram per pound of lean body weight or one gram per pound of what you think your ideal body weight is as far as intake of protein 
per day. And fasting is a really interesting thing that puts a little bit of a caveat to that. When your body starts fasting, you enter into a phase called autophagy, where your body is literally eating itself and is recycling things in the body, including proteins. And that can really throw people off as far as recommendations for daily protein intake. From what I have noticed personally, I think it greatly reduces the amount of protein that somebody needs to intake in a day. And so if it feels like you have started time-restricted eating, you started fasting, you're now skipping meals because you're not that hungry, I don't think you necessarily need to go out and try to get the same amount of protein just due to the fact that your body is going to be recycling the proteins in the body. And, and one thing to be really clear about, when we're talking about protein, we're talking about lots of different things in the body, not just muscle mass. I really have not come across anybody who has done time-restricted eating or fasting as long as they do it in a smart way that makes them lose muscle. It's not something I've ever seen using body fat scales and, and skeletal muscle mass scales. Anecdotally, it's just not something that happens because the body is so good at recycling its own proteins. And again, that's coming from lots of places, including skin. It's really interesting if you look at before and after pictures online of people that have lost tremendous amounts of weight by using fasting, they really don't look like they have been fat at all in their after picture. And I believe that's because the skin is remaining really tight and, and going back to its original form, which again, I accredit that to autophagy. Super interesting stuff. A lot of people think of gluconeogenesis as a swear word, right? Like your body, when it doesn't have the carbohydrates right. it needs, it has to make them through protein. And people think protein, right. so then they think muscle. And those two are different things. And if your body That's is using right. fat and ketones as fuel, you don't even need a lot of gluconeogenesis no. anyway. And That's right. It, and you learned the benefit of fasting. And so I really want to talk to you about like what you learned when you started fasting because this is very counterintuitive for a lot of people. And this took me a long time to really get a good understanding of. I was using yeah. a metabolic cart for years, measuring people's metabolic rates. And I would, yeah. I would tell them you have to eat X amount of calories or your metabolism is going to tank. And I started noticing this thing where people would try low carb diets or they would try fasting and their metabolic rate would be through the roof and they would be happy mm -hmm. and healthy and they're not that hungry and they feel great. And they're looking at me saying like, I, I can't eat that many calories unless you want me to eat Twinkies. What do you want me to do? Like, how did you come to the understanding of how beneficial fasting was, what autophagy is and how that helps with gluconeogenesis? Well, let's give all, I'm going to give almost all the credit to Dr. Jason Funk and the work that he has done and his colleagues and the book that he wrote on, um, uh, is it, um, Obesity oh, Code? Uh, well, the, yeah, the beat, but the book before that was, um, I have it in my library here, but the, not the art of fasting, but, uh, um, well, it's, it's his first book on fasting. If I walk into the other room and go get it, I could, but it's his first book on fasting. And I started to read the research on it. And what really struck me as I was getting older was that the research that I was reading and what Dr. Fung talked about was that true fat, true, first of all, true fasting is very different from starving. When you're fasting, you are not starving. The processes are very different. And when you fast for a long enough period of time, and I think Dr. Fung and the, and the other experts, minimum 16 hours, more towards the 18-hour mark, you're actually increasing growth hormone. And I thought to myself as an aging guy, whoa, I, you know, I'm never going to take exogenous growth hormone. But if I could find a way to somehow manipulate my diet 
to increase my growth hormone, then might maybe I'd be able to build a little bit more muscle than I have now. So I decided to do an experiment. And so and and about the autophagy part is so when you're really not eating anything and you are uh, um, fasting properly, autophagy is the process where your body cleans up its junk proteins. It sort of like sweeps up, it gobbles up the damaged junky proteins and actually seeks out the carbs inside the fat cell. So it's like it goes around like Sherlock Holmes, seeking out all of that stuff and using that as a source of protein. That's why you don't lose muscle tissue because you're bought because of the, when you're fasting because of the process of autophagy. Um, I decided to do an experiment because I had the in-body 570 machines that I had just purchased and I wanted to see, and it measures your total body water, and I'd be able to see if the benefits of fasting would actually occur. And I doubled down on it and went to a uh, MRI, uh, a, um, MRI imaging facility where I got um, my body composition tested with a DEXA. So that is like the gold standard, basically, where literally it's radiation. But these days, it's very, very, it's, it's no more radiation than flying in an airplane somewhere. And it measured my bone mass, fat mass, and muscle mass. So I did the DEXA scan, and then I measured myself on the in-body, my in-body device. And it was, it was pretty close to being identical within just a couple of points. Then for the next three months, I fasted 18 to 20 hours every day, black coffee, water, not a calorie went in my mouth for minimally 16, mostly 18 hours. And then I had two meals a day and I met my protein requirements of about 150 grams of protein. I did that for three months. I went back and got tested on the DEXA and I tested myself on the in-body machine. No differences in my weightlifting. Exact same slow burn routine, increasing the weights where I needed to, but no different. And I had lost, I even I have the data right here. I lost um, my body fat percent went from 18.1% to 9.4%. My fat total fat mass was 30.4 and it went to 14.8. Now here's the cool part. My lean mass was 131, and it went to 136. Even my bone mass increased. My percent of lean tissue went from 77% to 86.3. And I had lost, I went, my body weight went from 168.5 to 158.5. So I had lost 10 pounds of body fat and gained six pounds of lean mass by fasting for 18 to 20 hours a day, meeting my protein requirements when I ate at, at the age of like 56. Wow. So that was like, well, there you go. Something had to have happened. How many, how many people, how many trainers would tell you that is not possible? You can't do that. Right. They would say it's impossible. That's baloney. And I'm like, well, read the data. And the physician that, so when you get the test, you sit down with the doctor afterwards and he says, okay, this is what your results mean. The same doctor did my before and after. And when he saw the after, he's looking at it, looking at it. And he goes, he just looks at me and he goes, 
what are you doing? <laughs> I said, well, and I explained it to him. He goes, first of all, at your age, you have the lowest amount of visceral fat and fat mass. Only one other person I've ever come in contact with was in better shape than you. And it was a 22-year-old triathlete. And, and he was barely in better shape than you. What, are, what, are, what kind of exercise? I mean, I lift weights 20 minutes twice a week. He's like, no. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's what, what kind of aerobics? I'm like, none. He said, what? I said, none, zero, none. I sit on my 56-year-old butt and I do nothing. Um, and then I explained to him the, the ketogenic, low-carb approach to eating while fasting for a minimum of 16, more like 18 to 20 hours a day. And he was just mind blown. I was going to say, his head exploded, I'm sure. Yeah, he thought I was lying, but I wasn't. <laughs> As we are starting to wrap up this premium podcast episode all about protein, I wanted to give you some more exclusive content. So this does not appear anywhere else on Balanced Body. This is something that we took exclusively through interviews that have never been released. So we're going to go now to Dr. Anthony Chafee. He is the plant-free MD. He practices down in Perth, Australia. We absolutely love his podcast. It's a really great one to follow if you're interested in the carnivore diet or interested in getting all plants out of your diet and just having animal products and meat in the diet. We're going to get his opinion on how much protein is appropriate. And then we're going to go back to Michelle Hearn so we can get her closing opinion as well on how much protein we need to be including in the diet. Well, I mean, you know, protein is, is the building blocks of uh, most of the structures in our body. You know, you know, collagen is, uh, you know, amino acids, you know, bound together very, very tightly. And, um, you know, and that, that's major structural components of our body, just, just to name one. Um, protein is very, very important. You know, we, we uh, need this to replenish and rebuild, remodel and maintain the physical structure of our bodies. And so you're not getting enough protein, your body's going to start breaking down. Um, or you get, um, you know, if you get, you know, poor quality proteins, you know, you're, you're going to have problems as well. You know, there, there's, you know, genetic diseases such as, you know, Marfan's and Ehlers-Danlos where this is, a, this is a collagen issue is connective tissue disease where your collagen doesn't form right. And it's sort of loose and, and not great. And so the body just sort of breaks down. What is scurvy? Scurvy is where, you know, you, you don't, you know, you're not cattle, you're not making enough proper collagen because vitamin C helps catalyze the, the hyd uh, hydroxylation of, um, I think it's proline and lysine. And if they're, they're not, you know, uh, they haven't gone through that reaction, they don't bind together tightly. And so they're a bit loose and they break down and you, you get scurvy. Well, that's similar to these connective tissue issues. Um, so that right there, if you don't have proper protein, your body's breaking down very interestingly, um, you know, I was talking to Sean Baker about this and he was saying that, um, you know, no one's worked with more carnivore people than he has, you know, he, and he's been collecting data as well. He's got over like 12,000 people right. uh, and, um, that he's been studying. And so this is like big time info, you know, uh, uh, data that's going to be coming out when he's ready to, to publish all this. Um, he has patients with elders Danlos, you know, and he finds that not even going full carnivore, but just eating a lot more meat. They get rid of their Ellers Danlos yeah. because presumably, you know, their bodies aren't making collagen properly, but it doesn't matter because they, they're getting adequate collagen in their diet. And so now their bodies actually work better. You know, the, these diseases, they, they, they break down your joints. 
they have uh, you know very serious you know pain hypermobility you know it's kind of fun at first maybe it helps you in you know in ballet early on but then your joints just break down you know but it does you know there's there's a lot of a lot of um, I, I've known a lot of successful uh, ballerinas because you be, have to be very flexible and do this uh, these crazy splits and all that sort of stuff and and they can because they've got hypermobile joints. And that's because they have Ehlers-Danlos and their, their connective tissue is weak. And so they're putting a lot of stress on their, on their joints that are, they're already weaker and they break down faster. And so they get, you know, very, very painful, old arthritic joints, you know, in their early twenties. Um, they don't need to, you know, if they were, if they were eating more meat and, and just the majority of meat, not even necessarily completely carnivore, uh, but probably, you know, you know, keto and, uh, keto vor, what, they, what sure. they call it, what the, these kids are calling it these days. Um, you know, they, they, their Ehlers-Danlos like goes away, you know? So, you know, protein is, is extremely important, uh, in your body for a number of different reasons, but I think, you know, just, you know, just, uh, just plain and simple. It's what we're made out of. It's our structural component of our body. And, you know, you, you screw with that, you know, at, at your own peril. I really believe that. And here are the closing remarks from registered dietitian Michelle Hearn, all about protein recommendations. When we're thinking about protein in the diet, what kind of levels should we be shooting for? Do you think of that as something we should be maybe tracking or something we need to be aware of as far as hitting a certain amount of protein in a day? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think, unfortunately, like if you look at the recommended uh, dietary allowance, you know, it is 0.08 grams per kilogram. That is laughably low. Like we have had people advocating for the last 20 years, just saying like, this is not enough. When they actually, uh, when they came up with that, uh, that amount, they were using healthy teenage males. What is the amount of protein you need not to die? <laughs> and not, not like to thrive, to grow for, you know, life stress conditions. So, you know, that ends up being, I want to say for somebody, you know, who's like 150 pounds ends up being like 60 or 65 grams of protein. That's an incredibly small amount. But what has that led us to do? That's led us to tell people like, oh, you only need two ounces of meat or three ounces of meat. That is not enough. Here's another thing. When you undereat animal protein and fat, guess what's going to make up the rest of your diet? I've seen this over and over again. It's going to be carbohydrates. You know, when people eat less, if you're eating less steak or less burgers or less chicken, you're probably going to eat more pasta and more bread and more snacks. So, and that's the exact opposite way for health. So how I like to look at uh, protein synthesis Ideally, is you do want to spread it throughout the day. Like, you know, some people I know just want to do one large meal a day. And, you know, I'll never tell somebody if something's working for you, whatever. But we know that um, your body does better. Your body is able to synthesize protein when you spread it out. So I always, you know, they say kind of a general, um, general guide for healthy people is one gram per pound. That is a lot more, <laughs> you know? So for me, if I'm following the recommended dietary guidelines, you know, um, I'm probably tells me I need about 40 grams or 44 grams of protein. I'm about, but you know, I don't weigh myself, but between 125 and 130 pounds. So I actually am going to make sure that I get in 120 to 130 grams of protein. And since I'm incredibly active, you know, I'm an ultra runner, I often will get more than that, you know, and I'm going to make sure too that, that it's spread throughout the day. You know, I don't, uh, I don't necessarily think you have to do exactly, you know, this many grams, this many grams, this many grams, 
but they have found that just four ounces of beef, you know, about 28 grams. So usually shoot for about, you know, 25, might me personally as a smaller female, 25 to 30 grams per meal is, and I can meet my target easily, you know, for someone who's bigger, they might need twice as much. So that's not a two ounce portion of meat, you know, that's six to eight ounces. That's a lot, you know, animal protein makes up a lot of my diet. And if you get on Google or God help you, like some of those physicians committee or nonsense, they're going to tell you that, oh, it's going to be bad for your heart. It's going to kill you. And I can tell you, you know, from my personal experience, clinical experience, all of the research I've looked at that people who switch to these animal-based low-carb diets, I mean, we completely transform our health. Like this is how humans were supposed to eat, you know, because finally you're actually providing your body with enough nutrition, enough amino acids, you're stabilizing your blood sugar. Um, so yeah, I guess that was a long way of saying about, <laughs> depending on your health, about 25 to 30 grams minimum, unless you're a very small, small human. And then, you know, it can be up to 50 or to 60 grams, maybe even more if you're a very large human. Yeah, that's great. Well, we love that advice. We knew you were the perfect person to invite on. Michelle Hearn, registered dietitian and author of Dietitian's Dilemma. Where do you want people to go to find you? Yeah, check me out on Instagram. I'm at run, eat, meat, repeat. I'm also on Twitter at Michelle Hearn RD. And yeah, if you're interested in the Dietitian's Dilemma, my book, you can get that on uh, Amazon. We've got a paperback, Audible, and ebook. That's awesome. And we have to, for the listener, we have to recommend that you follow um, that you follow Michelle on Instagram because the videos you do with your wife are absolutely brilliant and fantastic. <laughs> Please keep them going. They're very funny and very serious all at the same time. Thank you. We have a lot of fun making those. <laughs> That's great. Thank you so much. Well, that was quite the deep dive into the topic of protein. We very much want to thank our guests who took the time to be on our show, be hosted on our show. We're so grateful for them and all the information that they are bringing to the table, all the content that they're delivering, all the research that they're doing. We just so much appreciate them and that information and that they would be willing to come and share that on our show. Really grateful for all of them. I do want to leave a few final comments. Um, in the last three or four months, I have been really thinking about my personal diet and I have been trying to sub out calories of fat and, and sub in calories of protein. I've been doing a low carbohydrate or no carbohydrate diet for a very long time. For a lot of people that are starting on a low carbohydrate diet, I find that really lean proteins aren't very helpful because they don't have enough fat that helps teach the body to burn more fat. But I've been doing this now for several years. I've been on variations of, you know, carnivore diets for the last three and a half years. And so I'm pretty well adapted at this point. And I figured it would be a good time to experiment with increasing my protein intake and decreasing my fat intake. And I've been doing that by eating things that I have classically not eaten in many, many years. Things like chicken breast, things like plain Greek yogurt, things like low fat cottage cheese. These are all very high protein and low fat items. And I just wanted to see what would happen if I incorporated that in again after several years of being on a low carb hydrate diet. So I really started this experiment in April of 2022. I have been tracking closely my body fat mass, my muscle mass, and seeing how those numbers have changed. Um, as the time of this recording, it is the end of July, early August. And I've been able to see that I have basically lost about eight pounds of pure fat. My total weight has gone from the 180s down into the 170s, which is really nice. Found that eight pounds of what I have lost is actually validated as coming from fat, which is great. And I have 
been able to add some muscle mass in that time as well. As I've started to add more cardio in during the summer, that's been a little bit more challenging, but especially through April and May when I wasn't cycling that much, I was still able to grow muscle, um, you know, a pound or two, which has been great. And through the summer, even with an increase in cardio, I've been able to maintain that pretty well and have a net gain from that time of one and a half pounds of muscle. So that's been really great. I did post about all of this on Facebook. So feel free to go back to my Facebook page, which I'll tag in the show notes, and go back to July 14th, 2022. I really tried to document this as well as I could. I tracked my food for that day so that you could get all the exact numbers. I added up the cost. I showed pictures of different things that I was eating, uh, mostly eggs, lots of meat, and things like I said, Greek yogurt, cottage cheese, a little bit of whey protein, and also experimenting with creatine supplementation as well. So I hope you have enjoyed this episode. I hope you've taken some lessons away from this, and namely that protein is extremely important. We do prefer that you get it from animal sources, but even if you get it from plant sources and follow a plant-based diet, really focus in on this macronutrient and try to get enough of it. We can't iterate enough. The general guidelines that they give us to meet for protein intake are far, far, far too low. I believe that they will absolutely cause muscle wasting. They will absolutely cause bone issues and all kinds of other problems. We really want to protect our muscle mass like we learned today from all our amazing guests. So please make this a priority. Make sure that you're eating protein. Literally eat it the first thing that you eat in a meal and have the other things kind of go to where they need to go for you to feel good. As always, nutrition is very unique and individual, but we feel very strongly about protein, about making it a priority and that's why we chose to start this podcast episode series with focusing on protein look for many of these to come and thank you for joining us on this boundless body premium podcast episode So thank you again so very much for listening to this Boundless Body Radio premium podcast episode. This deep dive into protein is going to live here at Boundless Body Radio. So this will be a free resource, just like all of our other podcasts, where you can come back and listen to this or share this around with anybody who you think will benefit. We think we did a really good job getting all of the best content from the best people for this episode. And we're really proud to continue to provide that for free, just like all of the other Boundless Body Radio episodes. Running a podcast, it really is a tremendous amount of work. It takes a ton of time and a lot of money to keep it going, but I feel so strongly about this passion project that I really want to keep it going and keep Boundless Body free of advertisements or anything else that would deter people from getting this information for free. So that said, this is again why we have decided to create our Patreon page. If you found a lot of value in this episode, please go check us out on Patreon and check out the prices and the packages that are included and see if it's enough of value for you to be able to invest with us. We are going to be continuing to put out these podcast episodes over and over on the Patreon page so that you can continue to get the very best of Boundless Body Radio in a condensed form, exploring all kinds of different topics in health and wellness. We are also going to be providing additional premium benefits on our Patreon page, including early release episodes. So episodes that we've already recorded that have not been released yet on Boundless Body Radio. We'll have some extended video. We'll have some commentary also between Bethany and I and how we think of some of these things, some of these lifestyle factors that we're talking about. We're also going to be offering some coaching solutions there as well. So please go check us out on Patreon. We think we're asking a very fair price for everything that we're including. If nothing else, please go to Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review. 
This helps get the message out to other people and keeps this podcast ad-free. Thank you so very much for listening to this episode of Boundless Body Radio.